Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. rights movement in the 1960s sparked riots and protests across the country. In Danville, Virginia, peaceful demonstrators were beaten and arrested. One of those arrested, Ms. Louise Pinchback, reads a letter she wrote while in jail. August 20th, 1963. I am a satisfied demonstrator. This is strange indeed and maybe a little comical but a very truthful thought. Near the end of May 1963, our city of Danville became a city of people, Negroes, becoming wide awake from a long, deep sleep, became a city of protesting and demanding people. Thus was the beginning of the freedom movement. I became thoroughly convinced that I had to stand up and protest the evils of segregation, even if it meant going to jail. I went to jail for eight days and longer if it had need be. While there, I received a letter from the Recreation Department where I worked stating that I had been suspended for 30 days without pay for the following reasons. A, being absent without leave, B, violation of the city ordinance and injunction, C, disgraceful conduct, unbecoming a city employee. My answer to these charges, as I told my department head, and they are true, I was not absent without leave. I had applied for vacation. It had been granted. To the other two charges, I said I am an American citizen, and the Constitution affords me the right to peacefully protest. This city does practice segregation, and I know it is wrong and sinful, so I protested and protested loudly. Then, too, I am still deeply grieved when I see the people who were beaten. I will never forget it. And I was told by the department head that he would never forget it either. The first two nights in jail, I experienced this terrible feeling of everything closing in on me when the cell doors locked for the night. On the third night, something told me to read my daughter's Bible, for everyone was in the same cell in jail. I did read aloud to the other girls, and we had prayer. It was at that moment that I experienced this deep, complete satisfaction that I had done what God wanted me to do, getting better jobs and higher wages for my people, being able to take my children to the movies and restaurants, and most of all, doing away completely with police brutality. And the quicker it's done, the better, I know. We will overcome, for black and whites are joined together. 
There's no need to be afraid for God is on our side. I know for when God wants to use you, he'll tell you what to do, show you how to do it, and give you courage indescribable with which to do it. A satisfied demonstrator, Nanny Louise Pinchman. Context of white supremacy, gusty renegade justice, and for another broadcast, hopefully, to share constructive information on the system of racism, white supremacy. Today's date, Sunday, September 15th, 2013, so I have been told. Uh, We should be back on Tuesday, even though it's not the cows, uh, Mr. Aaron Berg, a non-white male, victim of racism, and host of the Reality Unknown radio broadcast. Uh, you can check out his blogspot radio program. He actually has been a guest on the program before, and he's had uh, Gus on his broadcast a couple times. Uh, finally, we'll be doing my third visit on his program to discuss the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, share a few of my thoughts. Uh, I think it's been a while since the last time I was on this. I think it was last summer, uh, in fact. Um, we were trying to schedule a return visit, and uh, I think I kept botching uh, when I was supposed to do uh, the return visit, but we should be knocking that out on Tuesday. Uh, this Tuesday should be at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, and 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, this coming Tuesday uh, should be simulcast here at the Cows as well. Uh, today's date, September Sunday, September 15th, should have relevance for many, many reasons. Uh, I had been telling several of our guests, uh, or listeners rather, uh, that this year, 1963, was very significant. Uh, for many, many reasons, uh, most of them acts of white terrorism uh, with the assassination of Medgar Evers, uh, the water hoses being turned on black people in Birmingham, Alabama, the March on Washington that was just recognized and celebrated, uh, the bombing of the Birmingham church 50 years ago to the day in 1963, Uh, Malcolm X's message to the grassroots, uh, the assassination of President Kennedy, just monumental year. Uh, There were just lots of major events, um, directly, pretty much all of them dealing directly and or indirectly uh, with the system of racism, but just incredible year. I would encourage, I think I told some of the listeners, I don't think I said it on on the program, but I encouraged uh, several of the listeners, if you have parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles who are in their 60s or over, there's so many events, you should, you know, ask them and see what they remember. You know, if they participated in any of these things, if they didn't participate, if they were, you know, just keeping up with the times. Uh, It's kind of like, I suspect for a lot of folks uh, that are listening in now, when you have children and or grandchildren, they say, you know, hey, what were you doing uh, when 9-11 took place? Uh, It's a lot of events like that took place. In fact, 
uh, when I asked Mr. Fuller what he was doing when President Kennedy was assassinated, he said that no event in his life has been more traumatic than the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and he said he gave context for that response in saying that he lived through Pearl Harbor, he lived through 9-11 and was in Washington, D.C. during 9-11, and he lived through the Kennedy assassination. He said nothing caused more trauma amongst people than the assassination of President Kennedy. He said he remembered uh, just random people just sitting uh, almost in the middle of the road, but sitting on the curb, sitting on the sidewalk, and just bawling. Uh, he said it, it was just, it was so unexpected. It was such, such a shocking uh, event. But uh, ask your relatives if you have parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, ask them about some of these events, if they remember what happened, uh, if they remember the news, if they talked about them, how they responded, what they thought about them, what they felt. Uh, ask them, see what they have to say. I suspect you will get some, some interesting responses, to say the least. Uh, the audio clip that you heard at the beginning of the program, uh, as I said, Birmingham bombing happened 50 years ago to the day. Also in Alabama, you had the water hoses uh, with Bull Connor and all that, Martin Luther King, SCLC. Uh, that took place in 1963. That was not the only incident where racists used water hoses against unarmed, peaceful black people, victims of racism, who were opposing the system of racism, white supremacy. That also uh, happened in Danville, Virginia. I've told folks I was born uh, in Virginia, and Danville is not very far from the place where I was born. I have been to Danville, uh, Danville many, many times. Uh, there is nothing spectacular or unique about the city of Danville, no place you need to visit. Uh, just rinky-dink little town that you will pass through before you hit Greensboro, North Carolina. It's right on the border of North Carolina and Virginia. But uh, they had major uh, civil rights activity uh, now known as Bloody Monday uh, in the uh, late spring of 1963. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. had gone to Danville and spoke about racism, white supremacy. Uh, after he left, non-white people, uh, they made an effort to become more active in protesting various forms of racism, white supremacy in the area. Schools were still not allowing black people to attend with white people and, you know, all the other things that were happening uh, at that time. At that time, um, the black people said, you know, we're going to go out, we're going to march, we're going to protest. And the white people, they had various tactics. They ignored it. They didn't report it in the local papers and what have you. Eventually, uh, they deputized white garbage men uh, who went out and brutalized a lot of black people. Uh, just really horrific experience. If you go back and dig through the archives, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he talks about what happened in Danville, Virginia. Uh, Malcolm X, in the speech that I mentioned, Message to the Grassroots, he mentions Danville, Virginia specifically, uh, talking about black people uh, being tired of being terrorized and nothing being done about it and being more agitated and getting out on the streets to demand an end to the practice of racism, white supremacy. Uh, our guest for today's broadcast wrote about those events and her family even got directly involved. Um, let's see if I can get some help. Our guest, if you are on the line, if you could press star six, that would be great. That way uh, I would know which line is yours. I won't have to dig through uh, all the numbers here. Groovy, I think I see her. All right. Our guest for today's broadcast, she wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times 
in June of this summer, right, I think about the 50-year anniversary of what is known as Bloody Monday. And she was talking about her grandfather, uh, his involvement, white man, obviously, uh, and his efforts to oppose what was happening in the city of Danville. Uh, thought it would be great to have her on the program to hear more about this essay and her thoughts on racism. Uh, she holds degrees in writing from New York University and Boston University. Her articles have appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, the Boston Review, the Times Literary Supplement, and the New Yorker. Uh, she just released her th 2013 publication of poetry, The Forage House. Uh, as I said, the article, you can check it out. It's in the New York Times. It is titled, The Price of Rebellion. Real pleasure to have her on the broadcast. Joining us live, our guest, author, Tess Taylor. Uh, Ms. Taylor, are you with us? I am. I am. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Sunday evening with us. Fantastic. I'm so glad to be here. Outstanding. Uh, she'll be with us for uh, just the first hour, so if you have questions, do not dally. Don't wait till the last minute. Go ahead and get your hand up if you have any questions. Uh, anything that you think our listeners should know about you or the work that you do before we get started? Um, no, I thought that was a terrific introduction. I'm honored to be here and, um, and uh, honored to be able to discuss these topics with you. Outstanding. Uh, you are a white woman, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, the piece that you wrote in the New York Times, I guess even before I get that, make sure I get the name in, you heard one of the actual participants from the demonstrations uh, in 1963 in Danville, Virginia, Miss Nanny Louise Pinchback. Uh, she has other articles where people have gone back to get her thoughts on what happened, but I uh, thought that was a great segment, getting her to read some of what she had originally written uh, back in the late spring 1963. Uh, the piece that I saw that you wrote, The Price of Rebellion, can you inform our listeners what you were trying to accomplish with that piece and why you chose that title, The Price of Rebellion? Well, I didn't choose the title. Um, the New York Times usually writes their own headlines. So, uh, so just to be clear about that, although I did think it was a, a pretty good title. Um, I grew up in California. Um, I'm in my 30s, and something that was interesting to me, having a family that was deeply rooted in Virginia, and you know, knowing my father was just, he's of that generation, trying to ask um, my family, so what happened during the Civil Rights Movement? Where, where were you? What happened? And a lot of times the conversation would get steered a different direction, or I could tell that this was kind of a stressful topic for them. Um, and, uh, you know, after years of kind of hearing these reroutings, I, I got this sort of uh, line that was like, well, there was that thing with your granddaddy and the judge. So then I was like, well, what's that about? What's the, what is the thing with granddaddy and the judge? And um, I sensed a lot of pain and actually coming off of that experience. And uh, as time went on, I learned that, um, my grandfather had been arrested for writing a letter to a judge. Um, and I didn't really know what that was about. Um, it had had to do with the civil rights movement. But, you know, uh, family stories get kind of blurry. Um, and so 
when my grandmother was moving out of her house in Danville, Virginia, I was spending some time with her, and she gave me, she said, you know, you've been asking questions about this. Here's the newspaper clippings. And so I found that there, this issue of my grandfather writing a letter to a judge had kind of taken up the news in Danville in 1963 and made it as far as the Washington Post that my grandfather had been in the news kind of continuously for, for six months. So I got really interested. And um, as the 50th anniversary of 1963 approached, I said, you know, I really have to fill myself in on really understanding what this, what this story is about. So here's what it is. In uh, 1963, in May of 1963, there began to be peaceful demonstrations in Danville. And um, people were demonstrating about schools. They were demonstrating about libraries. And they were basically demonstrating because nothing of Brown v. Board had come through. You know that the city had not desegregated. In fact, instead of desegregating its parks, it had closed them, you know, and so forth, much of what you were just saying. Um, and the judge at the time arrested people under, uh, he, he put an injunction against uh, civil demonstration of any kind, and then he um, began arresting people. And um, by the end, there were as many as you know, 200 people in jail at a time, I believe. And you know, if, if parents came to pick up their kids at, at jail, they were arrested for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. And, so, um, and, and then, in the middle of all of this, one night in 1963, June 10th, um, this horrific act happened that um, you know, the city deputized white garbage men to, um, to enforce violence on, on demonstrators. So 50 people were marching. Of those 50 people, 49 of them required hospitalization afterwards and, um, and so on. The, the demonstrations kind of ended at some point in Danville. They slowed down. I'm not really clear on the issue. And this case, Meanwhile, the judge, Judge Aiken, was actually taken all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court because this constitutionality, should he be allowed to issue rolling injunctions against civil demonstration? I mean, that just seems like you're really pushing it to say, well, you can't hold a parade today or tomorrow or the day after that or the day after, you know. That's what he was doing. He was kind of using a crisis mentality but extending it, you know, ad infinitum so that he was making it essentially perpetually illegal for people to have peaceful demonstrations, which is, you know, pretty iffy. And his reasoning got taken all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, which narrowly voted that it was okay for him to have done what he done. And then it came, came back, his, his jurisdiction, his power came back to Danville in 1966, and he was allowed to go ahead and sentence the demonstrators that he'd arrested. And so... Um, on his first day of sentencing, he went ahead and sentenced people who'd been beaten, and, and also just people, people who'd been demonstrating, to a, 25, to a big high fine, what my understanding is a high fine, and um, six weeks of labor. So just kind of an intense uh, sentence. And my grandfather um, wrote a letter that night the, the, the night of the first sentencing in 1966, and he said, 
Judge Aiken, I think you're petulant and I think you're inane. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I am disappointed basically in this, in this behavior. I think, I think it was just ridiculous. And um, I think he meant to issue this harsh words sort of like a, a colleague. I don't really know why. He, I mean, I know that he was angry. The, the letter is an angry letter. I, I haven't figured out what was going through his mind at the moment that he wrote it, if he just was so furious or frustrated or what he was feeling. But it's a, it's a, it's a pretty strongly worded letter. And um, he sent the letter on a Friday. He showed up to work on Monday morning, and um, people came to his office and gave him a bench warrant, and he was immediately taken to court. And he was charged with trying to influence a judge, or he was given a bunch of charges. And the thing that was really interesting is that you mentioned that these demonstrations had not been covered in the paper in Dandel, that Dandel had actually turned its back it, it denied, it did not, didn't cover Bloody Monday. It denied that, you know, it, it, it didn't name demonstrators in the paper. It didn't name the demonstration. But when this thing happened to my grandfather, that a white man who's a mill executive of, you know, that kind of standing in the town would have been called in, um, it, lit, it lit up the media. So, at, I mean, it was suddenly, it was suddenly an enormous to-do that Lee Taylor had written this letter, but then he was being charged with trying to, you know, that, that there was this, in, this question of, of whether my grandfather was even allowed to write the letter. It, it became a kind of a, a, almost a, a media circus, if you can imagine, the frequency of, these, of, the, of the newspaper articles. So, um, you know, and somebody offered him money if he would go continue to, to fight for his right to write the letter, and then other people wrote threatening things, and the Dandel Lawyers Guild kind of wrote this editorial mocking and ridiculing my grandfather. I mean, suddenly he was the focus of a lot of attention. And um, I got really intrigued by uh, how those gestures must have felt. Um, my grandfather, I think, didn't, wasn't prepared to be the focus of so much attention um, and was taken aback. I don't think he thought through this act um, as, you know, as a protester, and I think he was taken aback by this backlash. And so um, he eventually uh, took the advice of a lawyer and apologized to the judge, and some people worked behind the scenes to get this whole thing kind of dismissed. And my grandfather went on with his life in Danville. Um, but it was interesting. He was a 45-year-old man, and he worked in a mill town, and the mill was the, his job. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't get promoted again after that. At the mill, he just received a promotion, and he just stayed in the same position for 20 years until he retired. And um, I think that it was a feeling that, you know, he, people were aware that he had kind of stepped out of line. Um, that's the impression that I get, um, that it was something where he'd sort of spoken out of bounds and it, it 
would, everyone made it clear to him, and he, he felt very strongly that it would be better if it sort of all got papered over and if life went on. So um, I think the other reason I was intrigued by the story is the, is the way that I think the line that I used in the piece was that we always think of racism as racist societies as acting really harshly on the people that they oppress. But there's always a kind of a, a set of rules within the class of people who are, you know, seen as the oppressors that you can't actually, it's, you, you risk something when you break whatever code is being enforced. When you speak at the edges or, or out of bounds of that code, there's a backlash and there's a cost. And, you know, nobody beat my grandfather. <laughs> that was not what was at stake for him. And I would, so, but something was at stake for him. And I think it was in, important for me to um, go back and try to think what, what that was. So that's a long answer, but there it is. That's what I was thinking about when I wrote that piece. Okay. I want to try and see if we can cover as much material as possible in the hour. I appreciate the uh, the detail in that response. We can kind of go through and purse that out as we move through the broadcast. Um, I guess the first thing, uh, these are two important points because you are an expert, you're an author, your degrees are in writing, so you know the importance, the value of words, uh, and that's something that we focus on on this program. Uh, you were talking about Judge Archibald Aiken, white man, I suspect, a racist on uh, the acts that he was doing. And you talked about these uh, indefinite injunctions, and you, the term that you used was iffy, that these were <laughs> iffy acts on his part. In my view, that is not the accurate term. I mean, if we want to be truthful, these, in my view, these are acts of racism, what he was doing to inhibit, to impair non-white people who were peacefully protesting, working against racism. It's not iffy. Uh, the other term you said that in looking back in retrospective at some of these events, um, that when we think about a system of racism, when we think about racism, how it impacts the non-white people, the targets, but how it also can impact uh, white people who step out of line. And that uh, sent up a, a big signal for me because you did not use the term racism in your report. Um, you, I'll go back and, and read the paragraph. Uh, you said, when we look back on our troubled histories, especially at the distance of 50 years, we might like to imagine that we would be Skeeter Felon, the character in The Help, or an abolitionist. My grandfather's story recalls the painful complexity of oppressive regimes, not only to those they oppress most directly, but to anyone who dares question them at all. And I thought it was interesting that you're writing this piece about a period of, in my view, this is pretty blatant racism. I mean, it doesn't get more explicit than this. Uh, some of the protests, as you said, when black people were going to peacefully protest at the libraries, which were still segregated in Danville, they removed the tables. White people did this. Why did you not use the term racism in this essay? Um, because I... The word, um, it, there's no question that that, um, that that is racism is what motivated that particular um, moment. But I think there's a, we live in a world with a lot of different kinds of oppressions so, um, and a lot of different kinds of codes. And a lot of, I remember when I was writing this piece, a friend of mine said, well, you know, 
I remember in the 80s, I had so many gay friends, I never spoke up for them. Oh, hey, hang on one second. Hang on, hang on one second. Hang on one second. Because we only have an hour. Uh, I would normally, I would allow that. But I mean, if we only got an hour, this piece, you're not talking about gay people being mistreated in the 80s. This piece, you're talking specifically about the spring of 1963 in Danville. There's no mention of gay people in this but, report. But you're not talking but, about gay people. Okay. You're talking about racism. But you didn't use the term racism. Well, but is racism an oppressive regime? Racism is an oppressive regime, right? It, it, I, I think um, I think the, the fact that I'm just sort of taken aback by your question. But um, Look, wait a minute, you're you take, know, the question is for, wait a minute, hang on, word, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. The question is why didn't you use the term racism? That's all. Because I liked the idea of extending this kind of moral quandary to the way that many of us live now. To take it outside of a certain con- I didn't want I didn't want to let people think, well, that's this question or that's that question. I think that we we live with questions like this all the time. I think that we live with questions like this all the time. I think that they're applicable. This kind of thing could be applicable in in all kinds of power structures. That's why I liked that, that term oppressive because I think there's lots of ways that people oppress other people and you know, lots of kinds of oppression that are going on in the world right now. And some of them have to do with race most directly, like that kind of event in Danville, which has so much to do with race. And then there are some that have to do with other things um, in, which, in which people are no less violent and no less unkind. So I, I, I liked the idea of broadening that umbrella. Um, okay. In terms, and you asked me about the word iffy. Um, I, that's probably just a little sarcastic. I mean, the, the fact was, um, it was even in a time when people, to me, it's a horrible red flag. There's no question on earth that, you know, what Archibald Aiken was doing was evil and scandalous that he, you know, was able to issue these ruling injunctions and that somehow he was able to get it through the Supreme Court. I mean, what I meant by even at the time, people are thinking this is, this is, you know, it was seen by everybody. It was seen by the common culture at that moment as questionable, extremely questionable to keep on you know, extending these injunctions. I mean, to me, it seems blatantly illegal, to be frank. But, um, you know, so anyway. Okay. Uh, in my view, I would say it seems blatantly racist, but no worries. Uh, you, in the report, uh, you point out that some of the victims uh, in this, even Reverend Lawrence G. Campbell, his wife, she was one of the people that was hit with the water hose and how she still has medical issues around this to this day, which I'm sure probably the case for many other people, uh, near 50 folks who were injured and required medical attention as a result of this. To your knowledge, has there ever been any compensation uh, for these victims or acknowledgement on the part of the police force in Danville, Virginia, about their acts uh, in 1963? Um, My understanding is that the the city of – now, I'm not an expert on this. I don't live in Danville. I'll just tell you what I learned while writing this piece. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not in terms of any kind of financial compensation. I did not hear anything about that. Um, that there is, the city of Danville has a plaque now at that spot 
um, which uh, was brought about through, um, not through Lawrence Campbell, but through another minister um, who was active at that time and worked really hard. And that um, there, are, there have been moments where on the, like the city council did a, uh, a kind of um, a, a retrospective television show where within the city they interviewed people and made a television show that on the local networks people could, you know, Lawrence Campbell spoke. Um, so there is a kind of a certain level at which this is talked about and recognized within the city. Um, my, my, what I was shocked by when I went back to interview people, um, oh, and you asked about the police guy, the po chief of police. No, that chief of police has not, to, to my knowledge, made any um, acknowledgement that this happened. And um, that's a sort of a gaping silence. Um, what surprised me and startled me um, in going back to the town and talking to people there was, was hearing the number of people who would sort of say, well, I didn't really know what happened. I still don't really know what happened. Um, a kind of a, a silence or ignorance or um, you know, a sort of a convenient ignorance, I'll put it that way. And, um, and then, you know, other people, and I'm talking about white people here who'd say, oh, I know exactly what happened. And so this sort of interesting, uh, that you asked about the word iffy, but this way in which there's a kind of a discourse around, um, around not remembering um, that's still active, even though I think the town has made strides towards making this part of its public history, there's people who I think um, still don't, you know, turn their back on that or, or, or don't, don't, uh, don't accept real full knowledge um, of, that, of that moment. Um, it's pretty standard. What? It's I think that's pretty standard uh, from what I've seen. That is a major pattern when talking about the system of racism, white supremacy, number one, for white people to not use the most accurate terms, uh, specifically to not label these incidents as acts of racism. Uh, and number two, what you call this willful ignorance, very convenient to forget about these past acts. And a lot of times we're not even talking about ancient history. It's not like we're going all the way back to formal slavery or anything like that. We're talking about events where a lot of these people are still alive, where somehow now everyone has collective amnesia and people don't remember what happened. Uh, in both of these, in my view, they are deliberate, conscious, willful acts of racism, white supremacy, not using the most accurate terms and failure to acknowledge what has been done in the practice of racism. Uh, but I wanted to ask, just moving forward, um, you wrote that your grandfather you're talking about, he set out as a privileged person expecting to be heard and ended as a privileged person surprised by backlash. But he did speak up. He was then used as an example of what could happen even to a white man of standing if he stepped out of line and in his own way, he spent his life paying for it. Uh, I thought that was fascinating for many reasons. Um, in fact, let me add this other paragraph before I get my question. Uh, and the judge in this case, Archibald Aiken, uh, Judge Aiken eventually vacated the jail sentence of your grandfather, but 
not defined. Nevertheless, a chill fell around parts of my grandfather's life in Danville. Although he was only in his mid-40s, he never got another promotion. He worked the same position in the mill for another 20-odd years. Uh, when you talk about a chill fell around parts of your grandfather's life, what does that mean specifically? And was he mistreated? You talked about him not being promoted. Was he mistreated in any way by other white people after this incident? You know, honestly, I, I don't know enough about specific incidents because it's a time before I was born. Um, but I do have a sense that um, I mean, it's partly the, partly the kind of the question that you're bringing up is what I was thinking about when I wrote this article because there's all kinds of inequities that are involved in this, right? Why should my grandfather's story of doing this, writing this letter be more important than the fact that people were demonstrating all summer, right? The, you know, the media coverage alone demonstrates enormous inequity. You know, is the fact that my grandfather felt ashamed or kind of a little bit cast out of the country club at all comparable to... Um, Lawrence Campbell's wife being beaten and, and having injuries on her hip? And the answer is, is no, it's not comparable. They're not comparable. I mean, they're evidence of, they're evi- you know, this, in, in those feelings themselves, there's, there's a great, you know, inequity of the treatment, right? But what I was interested in was sort of from, of the mechanics of, of being, how is racism maintained by white people among white people, you know? Is that little shock on the electric fence enough to say, hey, don't step out of line any further, you know? It, I, 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 I'm sort of intrigued by the way that, um, that that particular moment did feel traumatic to my grandfather or, you know, to the family. I mean, to be to be caught, to be sort of suddenly so public, um, publicly looked upon in that way. It, it, I think, um, I mean, I think it's certainly a very different kind of story than I mentioned the help, you know, where uh, this reporter goes and gets everybody to talk and everybody talks and then she writes a book and, she, you know, everybody lives happily ever after. And it, Fiction. The, pardon? The help is fiction. Oh, totally fiction. I mean, but I, I just, I, I thought it sort of, um, I did, I, I thought the help was kind of um, incredibly romantic version of, you know, how somebody could sort of, uh, sort of speak out at that time, you know. Do you think your grandfather was a part, I'll use the term that you used, do you think your grandfather was a part of that oppressive regime, what I would call the system of racism? Well, I think everybody's a part of the system of racism. I mean, I don't think we get to be, I don't think there's an app, like there's a really safe outside in this. Uh, okay. Let me re-ask the question. Then. Do you think your grandfather practiced, was a practitioner in the oppressive regime, what I'm saying is the system of racism. Well, if I said that there's, yes, 
I mean, I think he was. I think I'm also drawn to him because I think he's an ambivalent character. I don't think that he was sort of like a perfect saint. I think he was, you know, a, a white man in the South in 1963. I, I, I don't, um, you know, and I, and that was, that was sort of what that was. I mean, I, 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 I think we all struggle with the question of sort of where and how far, you know, where are we resisting and where are we not resisting? You know, um, you're, you're a white woman. Well, I'd want to get this into you're a white woman. And I, it is my view that this oppressive regime using your term, I would say the system of racism, it still exists. 2013. Uh, Are you a practitioner? in the current oppressive regime system of racism as a white woman? Well, I mean, I'm a recipient of enormous white privilege. I'm, I'm that's, pretty sure that's of not that. The question. That's not the question. Are you a practitioner? I'm not interested in the privilege part. Do you do well, things I mean, I, I don't, I practice I, racism, white supremacy? Um... Do I, I don't I really hope I don't practice white supremacy. I mean, I think these are all, these terms are so... Um, I can give you a definition. Uh, when I say racism, it's equivalent to white supremacy. I use them as synonyms. And what I mean is just mistreating someone because they are not white. Directly, indirectly, consciously, unconsciously, do you do things that results in individuals being mistreated because they are not white? I don't think it's possible to to avoid the fact that we live in an interconnected network of situations where I mean I I sincerely hope that I am never unkind to anyone. I since I just this is such a tricky question. I don't um I mean I think that you want me to just say yes, yes, I participate in the system. Um I just want truth. I don't 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 put words in my mouth. I just want you to be honest. I I mean I think I, I think we live in a society where uh, I mean I'm no I'm never trying to be mean to anybody I mean that that's 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 the way, when you ask that question all I want to say is I don't want to be mean to anybody that's what I want to say to you when you say that is I don't that's I don't not really answering the question. Anyone. That's, that's well, not but really then you're asking me like, do I unconsciously participate? Sh- there's um, there's a wonderful line in the liturgy of the Episcopal Church which says, "We repent of the evil that is done in our name and the evil that is done in our on our behalf, and we p- repent of the evil that enslaves us." And I think. I think we all happen to live now in a society where evil is done on our behalf quite a bit. You're still, I mean, we, you're still not answering the question. You're redirecting to. I'm not comfortable with done. the question. I mean. Okay. Well, that that would be that would be. You know, I don't Hang on. That would be better than just a lot of words that are not really going to the question because that's another pattern that I've observed. And you just saying that you're not comfortable with the question. I would appreciate I, I that so as opposed to. I was so excited to be to, on this radio show. You're just saying you're funny like, like I am. I was excited to be on this radio show with you, but it's, I'm, I, I just, I, I don't, I'm not, 
I, I'd really love to talk to you, but I'm not feeling very comfortable. Like, I'm not, I'm feeling like you just want me to say that, like, I'm a racist son of a bitch and an evil person. And, and that, I'm so interested in talking about race, and I'm so concerned about the inequity in, 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 our, in our country and with our really painful history, and I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in what white people can do um, about that, and I think it's actually a really tricky and interesting problem to think your way through, but um, I'm not actually feeling very comfortable with your line of questioning right now. I, I'm very excited that you wanted to have this conversation, but I'm, I'm feeling like you just sort of want to put me in a corner, that and that I doesn't will, feel very good. I will hush. I will allow some of the other folks to ask questions. Uh, I will say, though, as a white person, that is, as a matter of fact, I'll hush. I'll hold to my word. Justice, if you have any questions you would like to ask Ms. Tess Taylor, your line should be open. Please proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Ms. Taylor. Hi. Uh, what sources did you use to find out more about um, your ancestry? Um... Are you, which, what are you talking about right now? Which part? Are you talking about the New York Times article or are you talking about the book? Uh, the book. Um, so have you, have we talked about the book much on this show or where are we with that? Um, I uh, think it's like, I mean, I've like read like um, some. I I believe I read some of your book online. So I was just uh-huh. wondering, like, how did I uh, research what, it? Yeah. Well, I did a variety of things. Um, I I spent a lot of time in libraries and archives. I went to um, family boxes and wells. I worked at, for two summers at. Monticello, um, which is Thomas Jefferson's home, but it's also a repository of information about um, what papers do exist in Virginia. And, um, and I also um, worked with some people who founded something called the Getting Word Project at Monticello, where people whose families were enslaved at Monticello um, met uh, were able to kind of begin to do some genealogical work to trace themselves back. Um, so uh, I just, I mean, it was like a variety of, of resources that I used. Um, and sometimes I couldn't find information I was looking for. So when I didn't find information I was looking for, I just tried to write in a way that captured the silence that I heard because I just, I wanted to allow that silence to be as profound as it is and speak for itself. You know, if somebody's name wasn't written down, if, you know, you didn't know where, how to, how to trace an ancestry or a genealogy, if, um, I, tried to, I tried to work with silence. That was, some, that was some, a part of my project. So there was a combination of research, and then there was kind of letting the research end where it did. Does that answer your question? Yes. 
um, in your book, uh, The Forge House, um, you write that you are a descendant of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, what data uh, did you receive that has uh, you so sure that you are a descendant of Thomas Jefferson? And when did you find out? Oh, well, so that's part of the thing, right? I mean, I happen to come from a, a white family that was always written down generation to generation to generation, wrote this down and passed this information along, and actually made a really big project of creating a family tree. Um, and that family tree went back not only to Jefferson, but all the way you know, back to William Randolph, who was one of the um, first people who, uh, you know, of that line that arrived in Virginia in 1670. And um, he, he was the beginning of a, of a kind of empire. I mean, he, uh, he, he was probably one of the wealthiest landowners and also one of the people who owned the most slaves in Virginia of his generation. And um, so what I became really intrigued with was now, I inherited this thing um, just by the virtue of being born into this family, um, but I grew up in a little town in California, pretty far away from it, and I didn't really think about it mattering to me um, or what, what, it, what, did it, uh, what purpose did it serve in my life. I didn't know, you know, I didn't, um, and I didn't really think very much about Thomas Jefferson. Um, I just kind of went about my life and I had family in Virginia, and I visited them, and um, including my grandfather, who we've spoken about. And then when the, the news about um, Sally Hemings' family um, having the same DNA markers as Jefferson's family broke, I realized that I just never let myself um, engage with thinking about not just Jefferson and Hemings, um, but, um, but slavery at all. And so I... I started this journey from the point of view of somebody that needed to learn more about what it meant that slavery was practiced in my family. Now, that's an enormous topic, really, really enormous. But the part of it that I got most sort of haunted by as a writer was this fact that um, part of the condition of slavery is the condition of not writing people down. And so whereas I had access to this very, very, very carefully written family tree, that family tree rested upon the idea that there were so many hundreds of people whose names weren't being written down and who hadn't been written down and had been erased. And um, there are so many kinds of violence that um, are part of slavery. But the violence that I became... Um, aware of almost as the first guard of my awareness um, as I was doing this research was just this absence of writing. That as I, I wanted to go and find out how slavery had been practiced in my family, what it, what it meant, you know, more about who had been where when. And what I immediately confronted was that absence, 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 absence of record, absence of mention in official documents. And so... Um, that's a very long answer to your question, but uh, the, 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 the short answer is I, I always knew that I was descended from Thomas Jefferson. Um, I just didn't think about what it meant for a long time. 
Um, what do you, uh, what is your definition of history? Oh, that's such a big question. Um, history. I don't, I don't know if, I mean, um, I think there's lots of kinds of history and lots of, I mean, history is this sort of the past and there's lots of scales of looking at it. You can look at, you know, uh, presidents and famous men or you can look, try to look at the lives of people um, who, who carry out daily activities and you can look at the history of how people talk or you can look at the history of actions or... Um, I don't know if I have one definition. I, I think history is this kind of very layered, um, layered dimension. Huh? Um, one thing that you state in your book is that you wanted to know how slavery had had uh, been practiced in your family, what names had been uh, recorded, and also how certain uh, and also how uh, certain stories had been left out. Uh, why do you want to know these things? Because I was immediately, I mean, because I was, I was, I was immediately haunted by realizing that I hadn't thought about them. Um, I hadn't, I didn't, and I, and because I, I don't, I mean, Because I felt like there was this enormous incompleteness to my knowledge of what I knew about the the world, like I had been introduced to all of these kind of named ancestors, and I just sort of never i hadn't looked beyond them very far and it there was a kind of incompleteness i mean do, do you must feel that way as well, where you go to something and you know i don't know. You, you go to any monument and it's built for a certain person or named a certain person, but you wonder, well, what were the lives of the people like who, who, was all, who were building it? I mean, what am I not seeing? What were the lives of women? My mother is a historian. She works, she works on, um, on the lives of women in India. And um, I think her sense that, like, she was always looking at things but wondering how to see more or how to see something different um, women is another class of people who, whose lives often didn't get written down and don't get written down. And so this question of sort of looking at something and trying to see something else um, has intrigued me. What are your thoughts on Thomas Jefferson owning slaves and being a slave master? Um, it is one of the worst paradoxes. It's so, um, you know... He's just, it's unconscionable, really. Um, that is, uh, he, Jefferson is a, is a really, really difficult ancestor to inherit, you know, because he wrote about so many idealistic things, and he wrote beautifully about idealistic things, and yet he did not live up to those ideals. And, um, and he, what's more is that sometimes Sometimes he seems to have glimpsed the paradox of that, but often he seems not to have glimpsed the paradox of that. So um, he's a very imperfect ancestor, very imperfect. 
Do you mention about Thomas Jefferson being a racist white supremacist in your work? Um, those aren't the words that I use in in the book of poems. No, um, I, that's not that's not the way that um, that I refer to him in a book. No. Um, there's a very beautiful. I'll just leave it there. That's not how I write about him, exactly. Uh, then how do you, like, refer to him? Um, I think of him as embodying a kind of really tragic flaw. Um, and the the thing about Jefferson is that I do denounce the owning of slaves. Um, you know, I do denounce that injustice in him. And yet, uh, when I visit Monticello and see the work, um, the the books the beautiful, the sense of beauty that he has. Um, and I really, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm very torn um, because I, I understand that that beauty is built on the back of a really, really, really screwed up system, a violent system and a, a horrible system. Um, and yet I also see a very clear sense of beauty. And so, you know, as a as a writer who's drawn to things of beauty, um, I'm haunted when the things of beauty are made by imperfect means. Um, there's a really wonderful book by a Polish writer, Zbigniew Herbert, who um, lived in Poland under communism and had kind of a hard time. Um, but when he, he was never allowed to leave his country. When he did get let out of his country, he, um, he traveled around Europe and he would go and visit some of the most incredible um, chapels and statues and all those things. And um, he had this kind of ritual in these essays that he would write. He would eat something fabulous um, some local, and drink some local wine, and he would describe a work of art and, and describe how interesting and how rich it was and how kind of pleasurable it was to look at it. And then usually he would describe a kind of a torture um, that had happened, a genocide, I mean, a genocide that went on in the 12th century that maybe most people had forgotten about, or um, the burning of heretics at the stake. And what was really incredible about those essays is that in his mind, those things were, um, were always linked in a really painful way, that they, that they were never free of each other. Those things seemed... And he didn't, because he's a poet, you know, the big new Herbert, he didn't feel like alone it was his job to resolve everything about it. He was merely bearing witness to this kind of weird mixture of this history of torture and this history of art, and they were woven together. And, and that's what he said again and again, that that was, that was happening. When I think about Jefferson, I, I think of him... Um, 
representing and embodying things about which I can be proud and then representing and embodying things about which I, I, could, I cannot be proud. And so I think I'm interested in ambivalence. I'm interested in, um, and I think like Sabine Herbert, I, I don't feel like I can um, resolve all of that. I can bear witness to what is in turmoil, but I, I don't necessarily always think that I'm the one who can solve it. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, Yes, it, I uh, understand it. Yes. Thank you. Um, I'm a, I appreciate that you have my book already. I don't have your book. Uh. Oh, oh, because you've been asking very thoughtful questions about it, and um, you know, it's only been out for about three weeks. So, um, I mean, these are these are questions that are very much at the heart of what I've been thinking about um, as I as I wrote it. Um, so, now, I, I, I have time now to answer a few more questions, and um, unfortunately, I, I can't stay for the full two hours of this program. So, I just wanted to say that on the air in case um, I have maybe, maybe 10 more minutes right now before I need to um, depart. Okay. Um... I guess we I guess we can go to the listeners now. Uh thank you. Yes, go ahead. Thank you so thank you so much for your questions. I appreciate them. I uh, see three You're hands. Welcome. Uh listeners, if you can do one question, we don't have time for statements. One question and we'll get a response. Person that called in from Alabama. Uh your line should be open. Did you have a question for Miss Taylor? Um, yes. My question um would be for Miss Taylor. Um, what do you? What would you think is the appropriate level of, uh, of being comfortable when a person classified as white is discussing racism? What do you think is the appropriate level of being comfortable? I'm, I'm, I should, I'm I should be comfortable. I should be comfortable for a person classified as white discussing white supremacy racism. I'm sorry. I'm having really difficulty hear, hearing. It can can maybe uh, somebody. I'm, I'm, okay. It's like a. Um, oh, can, can you hear me? Can you hear me now? I can. I can sort of hear you. I I don't uh, totally. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, I guess they will. I guess someone else could repeat my question. But I'm asking: Should it be comfortable? Should a person classified as white be comfortable speaking about white supremacy, racism? Well, so I have a, I, um, I think it is, it's, I have a very good friend named Martha Collins who, um, who wrote a book of poems that's quite beautiful and good. I, I mean, I would recommend it to anybody. Um, it's called Blue Front. And in this, uh, the, the, the thing that provoked her to write this book of poems was that she discovered that when he was a child in Cairo, Illinois, her, um, her father had witnessed a lynching. And it was something she hadn't known, and it came to light. 
um, after he had died, and she sort of reframed how she understood almost you know, his whole childhood through understanding that he'd been present at this moment. When, um, and it was, a, it was a moment when um, people had made postcards of this. I mean, they turned it into a really horrifying event into a kind of a, a tourist spect- spectacle. I mean, unconscionable, really. And so when she talks about it, she said that when she started writing this book, People said, "Well, how, you know, are you writing black, black history?" And um, and Martha Collins would pull out these postcards and say, "Look at look at this his, look at this moment, right? And he, how many black people are in this photo? And you know, there's one black person in the photo, the person that's being lynched. And how many white people are in the photo? And the photo is full of." full of white people. So um, I think that part of the problem that we have is that um, sometimes whenever something has to do with, with slavery, it's seen as having, it's seen as black history, right? I mean, I, I'm not writing a history of slavery in the widest sense, but I think, you know, these traumas of racism happen to our whole society. I mean, they happen differently and unevenly, but I think that white people can't sort of just be quiet about how they come to know about race, what they know about race, how race operates in their life, um, about the moments that they see racism around them. I mean, I think that... So does that mean? So uh, hang on so a second. Hang on. Hang on one second. Because I want to make sure we get all the people, and then I'll go back to clarify. Because I don't really think uh, that maybe she didn't hear it, but I don't really think that was an answer to the question. Uh, but we'll see if we can get back to that really quick. Uh, the caller at two five one six. Did you have a quick question? No statements for Miss Taylor. Question for Gus at the, uh, when the when the guest leaves. Uh, so I just wait. Okay. Eighteen oh four. Did you have a quick question for Miss Taylor? Can I be heard? Um, yep. I'm going to pass, actually. You can go back to caller from Alabama. Okay. Uh, caller in Alabama, his question, if I heard it right, was what level of comfort should a white person have in a discussion on white supremacy racism? I think that was his question, and I don't think that your response really matched but, but, that question. Well, I, I mean, I, I can't... I think it's very uncomfortable to talk about white supremacy and racism. I think it's, ter- it's, I think it's terrifying and scary and that people, um, when you talk about racism, there's an enormous wall of shame that comes up. I think people, um, you know, that people are really scared of being called racist. So I don't, I don't, I don't, and I think that people are very ashamed of racism, of, of being racist, and also of being part of a society that is so clearly um, racist, you know. It, it's, it, so I think, I think that's why people get very uncomfortable when, they're, when white people get very uncomfortable when they're talk, asked to talk about race, or they can. Um, I think it takes some sort of practice. Um, what, what's the appropriate level? I don't know what the appropriate level is. 
I mean, if people are too afraid and too uncomfortable to talk, um, then we'll never get anywhere. So I guess, does that answer the question? Does that help? What, what would you like to... Did that answer your question, caller in Alabama? Um, I mean, yes, uh, um, yes, she she kind of answered my question a little bit, but I, I, yeah, she answered my question a little bit, but I don't. If I if I can give my opinion, I don't think it's our obligation as victims of racism to make the people who practice racism feel comfortable. I don't think that's part of our obligation, but that's just I my don't opinion, think it's and I'm just victim. Of- I don't think it's part of your obligation either. Agreed. 1804, did you have a question? No, sir. Right on. Uh, You said in your article that your grandfather was not a hero and that sometimes I painfully think that it was not enough with regards to your grandfather. Have you Mm -hmm. done enough to work against the system of racism? No, I don't think I have. But, I mean, I'm part of a discussion group um, about, it's interesting, we just did this class today, and somebody brought it up that this is the 50th anniversary of the church bombings at Birmingham. Um, I'm just part of a group at my church. Um, Something I've been thinking about is this, I live in a school district um, that I grew up in where um, the history of racism is, in the history of kind of segregation um, is very much part of the dynamics of how that school district functions. And I've been trying to think about like what what I, what actions I can take to help um, to help the school district be more um, healthy uh, and kind of break down some some piece of of that that legacy. Um, you know, I can say that I think about these questions a lot and I look for, um, what, I can say one thing that happened this week that was incredibly moving is that um, a woman whose oral history traces her back to um, the Taylor family in Virginia uh, contacted me about my book when it came out through Publishers Weekly. Um, she found out and she said, you know, I think that we're the same line. And, you know, her her history would make her a descendant of Thomas Jefferson, not through Sally Hemings, but through one of Jefferson's great-grandsons. And um, so she and I have been talking for hmm, six months over the phone. And I was, we had a chance to meet for lunch in Virginia this week when I was there reading from my book. And I, I mean, I can't tell you what a great experience it is to meet her and to begin to have a conversation with her um, and, you know, about our shared history um, and kind of talk in practical terms about, you know, what resources can I offer her in her genealogical search? Um, but also just what do we want out of a conversation from one another? Um, that's just a, a deeply, you know, a personal thing. 
whether or not that's going to systematically dismantle the system that we live in, that it, I don't know. Um, I, I don't pretend to be a policy expert. Um, that's, that's not how I think. Um, I, think uh, I think about writing. Um, so, so in some ways, if, if you want me to have policy answers, I don't necessarily have them. But I, I try to think in my own life um, how to recognize uh, these moments and what, what can I do better. So um, I think I probably need to stop there. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't realize that you needed me until 7. But if you have one last question, maybe, maybe I could just do that. Okay. Uh, Justice, did you have another question you wanted to get in? Yes. Um, what do you think about the rape of Sally Hemings by Tom, uh, by uh, Thomas Jefferson? I think it's horrible. Okay. Um, and why you? I mean, I also think it's part of the. Um, I mean, you know there's lots of people who have lots of different ways of telling that story. There's some people who say that it never happened. There's some people who say it couldn't have happened because Thomas Jefferson was so pure and it was his brother. You know, there's those people. Then there's people who want to imagine that in such a situation, you know, over all those years there could have been some kind of, some kind of love. And then there's, then there's just the fact that there's, you know, power and sex, and race, and rape, you know? And I, I, I think, um, I think one of the reasons that it was interesting when the uh, Thomas Jefferson evidence came out about, you know, this, this being a highly probable situation was that here was something that I think people in the African-American community have known all along, which is that black people and white people are connected by this, you know, that there are all of these unacknowledged parentages out there, all of these unacknowledged families. And, you know, the fact that it should be a wake-up call to me or that it should be sort of news to white people, I think, I think this DNA sort of made it news to white people and kind of affirmed the fact that the, that that was happening all along. Um, I mean, in some ways, if you ask me how I feel about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, it, it just makes him part of the fabric of how slavery was practiced across America, you know, from the beginning of slavery till the end of slavery till after slavery. I mean, this woman, Gail Jessup White, who came to visit me, thinks that all of her you know that that this, her relationship with this Taylor man of her of her great grandmother happened after slavery, and she didn't. She said, "I I like to think that maybe there was some kind of bond that was there between them, but you know, to try to reach back into like what it must have been, you know, she, it was interesting to talk to her about her 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 attempts to imagine it and mine. Um, we." You know, that was 
that was uh, it was a relationship in the 1870s, you know, and Anyway, I think it's I think I think it's a, I think it's it's terrible, and then I also think it's kind of an incredible thing if we can somehow embrace now in the society that we live in that we're actually all related to each other. I think is a pretty radical idea, actually. Um, I think that. It's a. It, it, I think it could be. I think there's something in it that could be potentially um, really fabulous if we could wrap our minds around it. Some small element of the fact that we're all related to each other. You know, now the challenge would be to treat each other that way. You know, with that much dignity and respect at all moments. I think if we could live with that in our hearts and in our actions, we would, we would take ourselves forward, you know, further and further. So, um, you know, that's one of the wishes of my heart, at least. Thank you. Um, Thank you very will, much. You're welcome. Uh, that will be all for now. Gus, go ahead. Our guest, uh, Ms. Tess Taylor, uh, you know you have a dinner engagement. Um, I'll ask, I know you said that you were uncomfortable. I am known for saying on the program it is important that we get comfortable being uncomfortable when dealing with making an effort to replace racism with justice. Uh, I would enjoy continuing the dialogue. Uh, later on, we can talk about your book uh, and some of the pieces that you've written. I'm an alumnus of the University of Virginia, so this is something I would just love to chat about, Thomas Jefferson and all of this. If you would be down to come back on the program uh, later on, maybe in the autumn, uh, it would be great to continue the dialogue if you uh, have a little bit more time. I know you said you were uncomfortable earlier, but I think that is, uh, that's not something we should run from. We should have the courage to be uncomfortable. Um. I, I agree with you on that 100%. And um, I think, um, did you see that, that UVA has begun an official inquiry into um, the history of slavery at U University of Virginia? Did you see that that's a, there's, they've called for a commission to do, that, do, to do more historical work about you know, how, how, was, how did slavery kind of affect the, the institution? Wow. Um, it, I can send you that article if you'd like, and it might be really interesting for you to um, to interview the people who are who are taking that on because um, I mean my view is that as we do more and more of this work and have more and more of these conversations, my my hope is that only good things can come of it. I mean, in this world sometimes things that seem like they're going to be great turn bad, but, um, but uh, anyway, j just, just since you're from that landscape, I'm going to, I'll send you that article when we're off the phone. And, oh, yeah. you know, to, I mean, all conversations about race are to be continued. I don't think there's a way to solve anything, and that's um, in 15 or 20 minutes or, or um, you know, uh, it's, this is a legacy that goes back, you know, 400 years, right? So, um, 
so we, we can hardly expect that we're going to solve it in, in, in an hour. Um, but I really appreciate you inviting me onto your program and um, the work that you did in reading uh, my writing so far. And I appreciate the questions. So um, yes, I, uh, I do need to go. Uh, thanks very much. Have a good evening, everyone. Right on. Bye Night. Night. Context of white supremacy, Tess Taylor, white woman, uh, joining us live for the broadcast. I didn't hear an answer there either. Interesting. Um, we will take a commercial break. I saw some folks did dial in late, uh, and I said, you know, this is a program you can't dial. you got to get your hand up early. Uh, if you want to share your thoughts or if you had a question, uh, I will get those lines once we get back from our commercial break. Uh, one thing I did want to read, uh, and this is shout out, we had our guest on from Northwestern, victim of racism, who was mistreated um, because he refused to do a recital of the work of Walt Whitman. Uh, Miss Taylor seems to be a fan of Walt Whitman. Uh, she did an interview on NPR. She actually did two interviews on NPR where she was talking about Walt Whitman. And you all know Sunday, my program, the only television program that I watch, uh, Breaking Bad, uh, it's ending soon. They have three episodes left. Walt Whitman has been a central factor uh, in the broadcast. Not only is the main white character named after Walt Whitman, Walter White, uh, but he has a book of Walt Whitman's poetry uh, that figures prominently in the, uh, in the plot of the story. It goes on for seasons where Walt Whitman is referenced. They do a poetry recital. I mean, who does poetry recitals of uh, 18th century poets, uh, or excuse me, 19th century poets uh, in primetime television. It's uh, incredible. The more you know, the more you will see that everything leads back to racism, white supremacy. Uh, this is Walt Whitman. Uh, this is in The Better Angel, Walt Whitman in the Civil War, page 80. Whitman is quoted as saying, besides, is not America for the whites? And is it not better so? He would put the matter even more crudely in an aside to Horace Trebell 30 years later. This is one reason why I never went full on the nigger question, he said. The nigger would not turn, would not do anything for himself. He would only act when prompted to act. No, no, I should not like to see the nigger in the saddle. It seems unnatural. Given such views, it is not surprising that Whitman's erstwhile publisher, Charles Eldridge, would later observe, I never knew him to have a friend among the Negroes while he was in Washington. Of the Negro race, he had a poor opinion. He said that there was in the constitution of the Negro's mind an irredeemable, trifling, or volatile element, and he would never amount to much in the scale of civilization. Walt Whitman, blatantly racist, but you will still have white people like Tess Taylor, our guest, who are singing his praises, and oh, he's great, what a wonderful writer. Same thing with Thomas Jefferson, racist, enslaver, rapist. He still gets celebrated as a wonderful person, pious, one of our forefathers, statues, monuments abound. System of racism. We'll take a quick commercial break. And we will be right back. I'll be sure to get the people that dialed in late. If you all had a comment uh, or question, even though you didn't get to ask, I'll ask you all. Uh, I'll get your lines as soon as we get back from the commercial break. Context of white supremacy. We will be right back. Stay tuned.
RacismDaily.com, your number one source for global news reports on race, racism, and overt actions of white supremacy. From Asia to the Americas to Europe to Australia to Africa, racism is not a thing of the past. It is our current reality. Be informed. Be globally informed. You should be the first to know. RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design that's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at TRI Multimedia. Multimedia.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Justice with the Cows Radio program. If you want to learn about, understand, and counter racism, white supremacy, be sure not to miss a cow's episode. We keep them jammed, packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism, white supremacy, ASAP. Also, to be able to invest in my counter-racist efforts, co-hosting the cow's radio program, please visit my blog, justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. I got an uncle real crazy. My uncle B, 55 years old, hates white people, married to a white lady. And he's sitting around going, you know, these crackers ain't shit. Except for Susan. He tried to explain the whole thing to me one day, say, yeah, 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 I got a white wife, I love her, she love me, that's all that matter. But I tell you this, if the revolution ever come, I'll kill her first. Just to show these crackers I mean business. 
motherfucker cracker ass motherfucker cracker shit cracker motherfucker what? hey hey hi honey <laughs> motherfucker cracker i'll kill my cracker kid too <laughs> context of white supremacy. Before I hit the phone lines, there are two reports I wanted to uh, get in. Uh, the first one, or actually three, make sure I do my diligence. Uh, the first one, there are lots of newspaper articles, as she said, the white people in Danville, Virginia, they made a deliberate decision to ignore and not cover the protests that were taking place in 1963, but they dumped a heap of attention on this one white man who wrote a letter and got in trouble. Her, Our guest's grandfather, W. Lee Taylor. Uh, this is in uh, the Danville paper from 1963. It's Danville Man Rejects Beetle Bumble Help, a mill executive found in contempt for criticizing decisions by a Danville judge has toned down his remarks and rebuffed an editorial offer of help. The action by W. Lee Taylor late Thursday night was the latest chapter in the controversial trials of civil rights advocate advocates who demonstrated in Danville in the summer of 1963. Three leaders of the demonstrations were due in court today to face charges that they failed to appear for trial on charges stemming from the demonstrations. The three, Daniel Aaron Foss, John Robert Zayner, and Ivanhoe G. Donaldson, were all convicted during the recent trials of violating a 1963 injunction aimed at halting the demonstrations all forfeited $500 bonds when they failed to appear before Corporation Court Judge A.M. Aiken by December 20th. Aiken has been the central figure in the trials, and it was to him that Taylor wrote last week. Nothing that Aiken was sentencing, noting that Aiken was sentencing many of the demonstrators to 10 days in jail with eight days suspended, as well as fining them $20, Taylor called the sentences inane. He said that they would only serve to disturb race relations, which had shown marked improvement here in the past three years. Aiken fined Taylor $50 and sentenced him to two days in jail after finding him in contempt of court. In stepped James J. Kilpatrick, editor of the Richmond News Leader. In a Wednesday editorial, he defended Taylor's actions, described Aiken as regally thin-skinned, watch those skin metaphors, and called for his impeachment, saying the judge had grossly abused his powers. Judges ought to be more immune from strong criticism than dog catchers, game wardens, or commissioners of revenue, the editorial said. In addition, Kilpatrick sent Taylor $100 from the paper's Beetle Bumble Fund, which is maintained, so Kilpatrick says, to alleviate the pomposities of public officials and remind public servants that they are not public masters. But Kilpatrick found no takers. Said Taylor Thursday night, I find repugnant the editorial remarks of James J. Kilpatrick, critical of Judge Aiken. Last night, I wrote Mr. Kilpatrick, rejecting any association with his position and refusing any contribution from his so-called fund. When I wrote Judge Aiken, I wrote hastily, and my words were not well chosen. I questioned the degree of punishment he imposed, not his judicial ability. Right, interesting report detailing our guest's grandfather, I thought. 
the second report I wanted to read briefly, and this is not even the full report. This is just a quick paragraph. This is from uh, Parade Magazine, August 24, 2013. The article is Why the Danville Story Matters. Uh, Emma Edmonds, I believe this is a white woman. I could be incorrect, but she went back to dig through a lot of the history of this. And a lot of these people are still alive. She went back to do interviews with some of them and going through the newspaper clippings and what have you. I thought this was important for many, many reasons. Uh, they write in part, uh, Emma Edmonds, excuse me, but for, but for me, this is Emma Edmonds talking, one of the most profound revelations was when I went to Danville Courthouse and I found the bonding records showing who put up the money to get the protesters released from jail. Mostly it was members of the local black community, people who had struggled to own homes in Danville and the surrounding area. Some of them already had liens on their property, homes and businesses. Many of those people contributed all the equity they had. I found more than 300 bonding records. And to me, the people who posted these bonds are also heroes. They may not have been part of the demonstrations, and some people have, I think wrongly, criticized members of the black middle class who chose not to take part in demonstrations because supposedly they had too much to, too much to lose. Mr. Fuller does recommend not using that word middle class. Continuing, the bonding records were a revelation to me because they showed that commitment to the struggle to end racial segregation took many forms. Some people demonstrated in ways that were more public and highly visible. Others demonstrated their commitment in quieter but no less important ways. Very important, I thought. I know frequently we get frustrated with other non-white people and what they're doing and or not doing to counter racism, white supremacy, and sometimes people are doing things that just are not public visible. Uh, the last thing I wanted to read, and then I'll hit the phone lines, uh, as I have said repeatedly today, 50 years to the day, the bombing of the Birmingham church in Alabama, significant also because this week they had the report about the white Alabama University of Alabama sororities not allowing black females to join their sororities, even 2013 is still going on. Not that I think it is an act of self-respect, black self-respect for black people to be trying to gain acceptance from white people, but just that is still happening. At any rate, uh, Life Magazine has a, a great report I wanted to share really quick, and then I'll hit the phone lines. On September 15, 1963, a bomb killed four African-American girls in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Morris were 14 years old. Denise McNair was 11. 22 other people, including Addie Mae's younger sister, Sarah, were injured in the terrorist attack, which was carried out by four members of the KKK. The 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, as it has been, as it came to be called, was a grim turning point in the American civil rights movement as even hardened segregationists, some of them anyway, were appalled at the scale of violence directed at innocence. Photographer Frank Dandridge was in Birmingham to cover the aftermath of the bombing. The funerals of the four murdered girls and the almost inconceivably tense and volatile racial situation in the heavily armed town after the bombing. While there, Dandridge made a picture of 12-year-old Sarah Collins 
bandages covering her injured eyes, cut marks, cuts marking the spots where glass shards had torn her face that became one of the signature photographs of the era. A portrait that captured in one riveting frame the bilious, lethal aggression that lay behind so much of the anti-integrationist rhetoric of the Deep South. When Life magazine first ran the photograph in its September 27, 1963 issue, the editors not only called out the officially sanctioned atmosphere in Alabama that fostered such depravity, but also included what they called a powerful condemnation from an unexpected source, a white Birmingham lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. Standing before a segregated meeting of the city's Young Men's Business Club, Morgan said of the bombing, who did it? It's really rather simple. The who is every little individual who talks about the niggers and spreads the seeds of his hate to his neighbor and his son. The who is every governor who ever shouted for lawlessness and became a law violator. It is every senator and every representative who in the halls of Congress stands and with mock humility tells the world that things back home aren't really like they are. It is courts that move ever so slowly and newspapers that timorously defend the law. It is all the Christians and all their ministers who spoke too late in anguished cries against violence. It is the coward in each of us who clucks admonitions. We are 10 years of lawless preachments, 10 years of criticisms of law, of courts, of our fellow man, a decade of telling school children the opposite of what the civic books say. We are a mass of intolerance and bigotry and stand indicted before our young. We are cursed by the failure of each of us to accept responsibility by our defense of an already dead institution. Who is really guilty? Each of us. Each citizen who has not consciously attempted to bring about peaceful compliance with the decision of the Supreme Court. Each citizen who has ever said they ought to kill that nigger. Each person in this community who has in any way contributed to the popularity of hatred is at least as guilty or more so as the demented fool who threw that bomb. Sarah Collins, now Sarah Collins Rudolph, survived her injuries, but she lost one eye and today lives with pieces of glass embedded in the other. Now 62, she lives with her husband George, not far from Birmingham, and is fighting for restitution from the federal government for medical expenses she incurred and for literally decades of suffering after the church bombing. In short, like thousands of other Americans have done, especially in recent years, she is seeking some sort of compensation as a victim of terrorism. On September 10, 2013, Collins Rudolph attended a ceremony in Washington where the four girls who were murdered in September 1963 were posthumously honored with a Congressional Gold Medal. It's just such an awful, awful shame, Collins Rudolph says all these years later, that it took that much violence for some people to finally wake up to what was happening in their own country. This, uh, you can check it out, Life 
www.time.com, The Girl Who Lived, Portrait of a Birmingham Church Bombing Survivor. I would say that indictment continues. Just she make it plain. Each and every white person is to blame, is responsible, and that would be the case as long as the system of white supremacy, racism, remains. Uh, we'll hit the phone lines. Uh, the folks that dialed in who had questions but didn't get an opportunity to ask, I'll get them first. Uh, that should be the person that dialed in 0673, last four digits. Um, the person at 7919 and the person at a blocked number, your lines should all be open. Uh, I did not forget you. Uh, the caller at 2516, you had a question as well. But the three, three people who didn't get a chance to speak with the guest, uh, if you all had a question that you wanted to ask or comment about what you heard, your lines should be open. Uh, yes, uh, can, I, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, this is Brother Minister, uh, Hotel Family Hotel, uh, Gus. Um, I caught the end piece of the interview, but as she was, uh, the author was talking, uh, what was kind of began to run through my mind is I noticed how when uh, whites kind of uh, supposedly reveal white supremacy and its practices, it comes from a place like a therapeutic place for them. Um, and normally they have no answers or no resolutions uh, to the situation. And my studies, uh, I'm in the criminal justice profession and have a degree in criminal justice. Um, it is known even in the order of the justice system or their justice system, there's three elements when seeking justice. You are, one, you have uh, accountability, uh, two, you have uh, public safety, and three, you have restitution. And so even within the rams of their own system, they know what is to take place in order to, in order to uh, rectify or attempt to rectify an, an offense. And it seems puzzling, well, not puzzling, but it seems uh, uh, almost uh, laughable when you ask them, you know, well, what, what do you think or what do you have any resolutions or solutions to this? Uh, they have none. You know, uh, they, they seem to appear to have, or I have, that has been my experience. And once again, I think one of the callers, or, or she was indicating, uh, the author was indicating how uh, she, you know, we could talk about this all day and all night. You no, know, you don't have to talk about this all day and all night to come up with some things to resolve the, uh, some of these issues. Uh, so it, it's just, I just wanted to point that out, how that seems to be a pattern, uh, especially with so-called uh, bold white folks that come out to want to speak and expose white supremacy. But I, I tend to think that really what they're doing, they're trying to uh, some kind of therapeutic way uh, psychologically, uh, you know, compensate for their shame. 
And that's, that's those are, I just wanted to make those comments and and um, maybe ask you know if I had an opportunity to ask her a question in regards to um, the accountability accountability restitution and public safety. Good points. Great points. Uh, the person that called in last four digits seven nine one nine, and the person from a block number. Did you all have, uh, I guess, comments you wanted to get in uh, regarding the guest or anything she shared? Uh, hello. Yes, sir. Hello, Gus. How you doing? Right, poorly. Mm. Well, I guess you can do better. Uh, upon my research for the last two years, I guess I've become conscious about uh, white supremacy. Um, how long do you think this system has been in power? Because for me, if anyone was to ask me, I would say about not 400. I would say about 4,000. Because when white people actually go into the history of racism, they're, they're, they're 90% correct in going to the 80% of it. They're, they're, I mean, the 80% right going to the 500 years of colonial times, but they forget that there was another... Um, uh, another type of uh, caste system that you know I'm sure you know about that didn't involve race, physical, but also the, but it really involved the skin tone because if you can see an ongoing theme around the world, uh, Asia, Pacific Islander, um, Southeast Asia, um, uh, on the continent of Asia, you know I'm sure you've seen the colorism over there. And, you know, with the Chinese and, you know, how the Chinese emperors used to have to be outside, I mean, inside, and then used to make the, the, the Chinese workers who were brown skin work in the field, kind of like the plantation in America. Do you think that uh, the white people in ancient times spread all across, all over Asia? Because I have a theory that they have before they actually spread it out to Europe and then America. You know what? If you if you understand, I'll talk about like India and the Aryan Dravidian invasion. Uh, the question, I guess, the original question about how long the system has been in place, okay. I don't. Um, I mean, what? Sorry. About my question. Sorry, sorry. I just said my question is: Do you think that the white supremacy has been in power for thousands of years, if not hundreds? Right. Going to that question, I don't know. Um, the system has done such a great job, it's difficult to even get a bearing of how long it's been in place. Uh, it, with regards to what you're saying, though, it makes logical sense. And I've even heard uh, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she has said that anytime you see a civilization or an area where white people are in charge, uh, she was referencing Greece, Rome, any of these uh, quote-unquote civilizations, uh, that this is, you're looking at racism, white supremacy. And she said that because she said that uh, what we recognize as white, the people that are accepted as classified as white, this is genetic recessive. There's no way you could have an environment where these people are in charge. It simply wouldn't happen unless there was a system of white supremacy in place. White people need that uh, as life support. Um, and she said that anytime you're seeing that, go on whatever period of time it happens to be, if it's 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 3,000, 10,000 years ago, that to her is trademark racism, white supremacy. So it makes logical sense. But I simply say, I don't know. Uh, I know it's been here for quite a long time. 
and we should go about the business of correcting it. Not that that's not important, but simply, I don't know. I think it's, it's kind of difficult to even get a gauge on how long it's, uh, it's been in place. But what you're saying, it makes, it makes logical sense. And uh, I think there's quite a bit of evidence to support that this thing has been around for quite a bit of, quite a bit of time. Okay. That's my question. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Person that called from a block number, did you have a comment or a question that you wanted to get into the guest before she left? Mm, greetings. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I was just going to... No, I didn't hear much. only thing I heard is her saying that we should uh, recognize something about us all being related. And... Um, yeah, I didn't know what that. I, I I didn't hear. I know. I guess Justice had asked her something, but that's pretty much all I heard. And um, yeah, she didn't answer your question. But you said, you know, you were like she didn't answer your question there either. So like, was that like a, a theme? You know, she 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 wouldn't. Ask, I mean, you know, <laughs> I was just wondering. Like, that's was was that uh, like a habit? She was. She was exhibiting on the program, not answering questions. Birds chirp, dogs bark. <laughs> um, my man had uh, Farmer Trav now, formerly Dr. Trav, he had said, uh, it's a sound clip of they were talking about racism at the Masters. And uh, I think it was Bob Costas. He was talking to another white guy. And uh, they had this great moment. He said, listen to those birds chirp. And you could hear the birds uh, chirping in the background. And he was like, you should play that when you have white people on the uh, on the program. And they're cutting the fool and doing what she did, not answering questions and buckets of words. He's like, you should just play that uh, from time to time. It would have been very timely for today because she was uh, just not answering questions and going off on tangents. Like, I think the first one was she wrote this article called The Price of Rebellion about her white grandfather uh, writing this letter and getting in trouble, writing a letter uh, about a judge who was practicing racism. And she used the term racism on the program, right? She used it, but she didn't use it in her article. And I said, well, that's interesting because you don't use the term racism in your article. Why is that? And she said, oh, well, that is interesting. And, you know, gay people in the 1980s, they were being mistreated. And I went in this way, wait, 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 wait. We are not talking about gay people in the 1980s. We're talking about racism in 1963, Danville. There's no mention of gay people, the 80s, disco. I mean, what are you talking about? And I mean, it, yes, that was a, in my view, at least, that was a major pattern uh, in her responses throughout the program, uh, just conflation, dishonesty. In my view, this is just the way that white people practice consciously, deliberately, willfully practice racism. But there was uh, heavy, heavy, heavy doses of that throughout the program. You have a bird um, sound clip? Was that? I thought I heard, I thought I heard some birds chirping. <laughs> Not right now, no. <laughs> uh, I do Did have anybody a... else hear that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess I, just, I was only one. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I do have a bird sound clip, but I was not. Uh, oh, I, I was yeah. Sure. Somebody might have been doing their teeth or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, uh, quick question, because I know someone wants to um, ask more questions. I, I, you know, Gus, this guy, he, uh, I see him, he, he does these news reports coming out of Virginia, 
And the reason why he does this, like, he's from Virginia, but he was breaking down, like, all this weird, um, you know, history and this, you know, these strange, strange... Hello? Yes, sir. We can know. Oh, I was echoing for a minute. Strange events that's coming up, uh, that comes from Virginia. And um, I was just wondering, do you ever check the uh, Virginia, um, like the, 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 the main uh, news sources that's coming out of Virginia? And have you noticed anything like that, like very strange? Um, like, it, it very like you know, as far as the rest of the country, it's like Virginia has always got something extra weird happening. And I was wondering if you noticed that. Uh, I don't check Virginia news as regularly. Um, it's been a while since I've uh, actually been in the state of Virginia, so I don't check it as often. Um, I know I have, um, when I see things that pop up related to racism, I do try to uh, jab it in uh, from time to time. I know what happened with the school uh, program, uh, them having different standards for black people where the standard was set really low for them. And uh, they had more recently, they had in, I think it was in Danville, they had an incident where the Virginia Department of Transportation, there were some uh, black employees. Uh, they were saying that they were putting up some, the same racist tactics. I think they were putting up some uh, nooses. So I, that was what it was. They were putting up nooses uh, on the workplace. Like I'll see different incidents like that, but I don't make an effort to um, regularly uh, check the news site to see what they're doing uh, in Virginia. Um, if the guy that you're talking about, if he if he's catching some things of interest, uh, if you let me know, I'll check his uh, check his site or what have you and hear what he's hear what he's talking about. If it's something that we should keep an eye on. Okay. Yeah, I'll check it out and um, make sure it's. Uh you know, legit before I uh, pass it on. I do want to check that about UVA, though, what she said about them, uh, I guess, doing more research into the slavery uh, and the history of how they built the campus. Uh, somebody's on speakerphone. If you could turn that off, that would be great. Uh, the folks that dialed in, your line is open. Just make sure you don't have speakerphone on. Um, but, yeah, when... When I was there, white people, I would just play the sound clip again, white people are not ignorant about racism, uh, no aspect of it. And particularly when you start talking about white people uh, at these major universities, uh, these are institutions of white supremacy. This is where white people to go to refine their skill at practicing racism. They make it their business to know this history. I see no evidence that white people are ignorant, that they don't know about slaves being used to build the entire university. When I was there, they had plaques. Uh, the dorm where I stayed, the upper-class dorms, they had plaques there that said, oh, this is a site where uh, the slaves were buried. And they had little signs, like, all around campus. Like, I saw no evidence that white people were ignorant uh, about this, that they didn't know about this, that they have tons, racks and racks and racks of records uh, on this. Uh, I think even Bruce Bunch, he said repeatedly that white people, they will spend hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of dollars uh, to pretend as though they're doing something to work against racism when that's not the case at all. But uh, yeah, I will, you know, check it out to see if they have any, any details, but it's been, even, even with the Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings thing, white people talked about it as though this was fact, undisputed fact that Thomas Jefferson was raping Sally Hemings in the 19th century. Like they are news reports, magazine articles, white people were talking about this all the time. All of a sudden, what she did talk about white people having some sort of collective amnesia, now you move to the 20th century, and now 
what? What are you talking? I don't. That didn't happen. What? Now all of a sudden, white people act like no, there's no evidence of this. You all are just making that up. This is just you know nigger talk. Things they just are whispering about over in the fields and the ghettos and what have you. Now you got to go get DNA sample and all this other foolishness. Like white people love to waste time on this sort of thing uh, and make it look like maybe they're working against racism. But uh, it's been my opinion. They don't need to spend any more money about what the slaves did at Virginia. They know all that stuff. Uh, it's just white people clowning and probably making some jobs for some white people to go and do research and publish a book or magazine or documentary or whatever they're going to end end product will be as a result of all this. But uh, the other per- or Alabama, your line should be open too. I want to make sure I didn't miss the call of it. Said he had a question. Uh, two, five, one, six. Did you have a question still? Yes, uh, it was kind of like a question, question comment. I may be, I may be overreaching, but uh, based on the guest uh, uh, answers and stuff to the books and that thing, I have a I have a distinct feeling that somebody else wrote the book and just put her up in front. Like I said, I might be overreaching and being too paranoid, but that's just a feeling I got because it's too much. And I'm not talking about the uh, avoiding the racism thing. I'm just talking about just the general questions about her book, period. It's too much hemming and hawing, too much of, uh, you know, and so forth. I do not think she wrote the book. I think somebody else wrote it and just put her in front. That's all I had to say. Hmm. Interesting. It is a book of poetry. It's not even, you know, like... Uh a major nonfiction work or even a novel or anything like that. It's just a collection of poetry, uh, unless I'm poorly informed, but, uh, that could be, could be a ghostwriter, uh, for her, uh, to get what have you. I do think she, uh, she teaches as well, uh, in writing, but that could be the case. Um, it could be that what you're saying could be possible. And I think also just, I think when white people, I think farmer Trav again has said repeatedly that when white people, come on this program or go to other environments where they are not getting accolades and praise from non-white people, that it really shakes them up because they're just not accustomed to that, being in an environment where people are looking at them as racists and terrorists, uh, where they just, they don't bump into that really frequently. So it really throws them off in how they respond. I think it could have been that too. Not, like I said, what you're saying, is that could be a possibility as well. But uh, I do think that she seems to get rattled um, by having non-white people that were not just, I think she even said that, that I was excited about coming to talk. Like, yes, these niggas will think I'm so grand. I've talked about my grandfather and he wrote this letter to work against racism and I'll get some accolades and they'll think it's great and I can confuse them and make them think that there's some well-meaning, not racist white people. And when they don't get that, I have seen where they uh, can be a little thrown off with regards to how they respond. I think she said, I'm not comfortable. Well, can I make another comment? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, that's kind of like, well, that's, if that's true, that's kind of a sad, a sad uh, reflection on us. We let somebody that weak rule over us because at, uh, at different places, like at the workplace and everything, uh, because I look at things totally different from them, where they don't read, they don't look at the news critically. They, they believe everything that, that uh, the news people tell them, so forth and so on. And they call me weird, call me uh, uh, everything uh, but a son of God. But 
I'm not rattled or anything. I said, uh, let's take it to the lectern. If you want to take it to the lectern, it's because name calling is not proof. And uh, I haven't been rattled or anything. I've been attacked, not physically, but verbally. And I haven't got rattled or anything. So if she gets rattled because she has to have a hostile, or what she perceives to be a hostile interview or, or an interview that's not easy. And, and my, this is just my opinion. That doesn't say too much about her. And it's, you know, I'll probably get laid out to other callers, but it's it. If we let somebody that weak rule over us, it doesn't say much about us either. Uh, that's all I had to say. Hmm. There are other people that dialed in. Uh, I would just, that is like a standard part of the uh, racist package uh, for white women uh, to become flustered, cry. I'm being attacked. I'm being badgered. Like that is a standard uh, tactic that racists use. I think our conditioning over centuries now, uh, we are supposed to respond to the emotional, emotional needs of white people, white women, especially, I think. Uh, And I think they are accustomed to that working like, Oh, I'm being attacked. Uh, And even, you know, if it's me, I'm supposed to like, Oh my gosh, uh, we want you to feel better. And I'm so sorry. And I didn't mean to, to speak to you in that manner and I'll, you know, get myself straight. I think they're accustomed to that being the case. And uh, like I said, when that doesn't work, I've seen where that kind of throws off their game. Like, dang, these niggas are not responding the way that I, that I thought they would. Um, I think that's, that's just the conditioning. We've been conditioned to respond a certain way to white people. We've been doing that. We've been trained over many, 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 many years, along with the fear that we're terrorism with the Birmingham bombing and, everything else that we'll be celebrating for the rest of the year. Uh, white people have terrorized us for centuries. I think all of us have that fear of white people. That's just a part of the package. That's why we use the word terrorism. Dr. Cambon has talked about that. Dr. Welsing has talked about that. Mr. Fuller has talked about that. And many of our guests uh, think that fear of white people goes a long way to why we do not question white people as aggressively, uh, to why we frequently accept things that they say or things that they tell us a bit more readily than we would a black person, non-white person. Uh, It's just that's a part of the momentum of racism, white supremacy, Uh, the things just any white person. You don't have to have a lot of – Tim Wise, he doesn't have a Ph.D., he doesn't have a doctorate or anything. He's just a regular white dude uh, who went and got a four-year bachelor degree. That's not – you know, I know a whole lot of people who got that, but he's white Timothy Wise. Uh, He can go – matter of fact, I will hush because there's somebody else that dialed in, but this is from – uh, the guest's article, uh, and I'm just reading this because I think it, it helps to make the point. Um, the article, if you all want to check it out yourself, it's uh, on the New York Times from June this year, The Price of Rebellion. Uh, and she's talking to, this is a black male. He was actually one of the folks who participated in the demonstrations in Danville in 63. Uh, his name, Reverend Lawrence G. Campbell victim of racism. Uh, She's talking about her grandfather. She actually went back and and interviewed him for this piece. Uh, Reverend Lawrence G. Campbell, he says, I can count on one hand the white people from this town who said anything at all then. Among them was my grandfather. I said I felt sadness that my grandfather had apologized to Judge Allen. Mr. Campbell gave me a long stare. Don't you doubt for one minute that your grandfather went through hell, baby, he said. It took a man to speak out. He paused. It took God. He added, what your grandfather did was brave. 
In fact, he waggled his finger at me. It was stone cold crazy. And again, like I said, I'm not reading this to, to bad. This is a victim of racism. And this is, you know, an older black person who has seen a lot of grisly things. But just the fact that once again, we have a black person using biblical terms, referencing this white person as God, an angel, white Jesus, just because they wrote a letter to a judge. That's all. They didn't go out and get beat. They didn't get a fire hose turned on them. They didn't go and offer to pay bail or bond for any of these black people who were locked up. None of that. They just wrote a private letter to a judge, got more media attention than all the black people who got beat up and bombed and everything else, got a little fun, moved on, didn't lose his job, didn't have his house foreclosed on. And this white guy is a hero, by, regarded by black people as a hero, that it took a man. It took God. Just that is that is a major part of our victimization with regards to why we accept what white people say so readily and the way that we think about and see them. Uh, I'll hush. Uh, the person that uh, called in on the uh, free conference HD line. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I don't, I don't take the view that I don't use the view that um, white people are weak. You know, I think um, the reason is because I see them as like a team who function very sophisticatedly together because they have a code. And I think the, uh, the guests, I mean, I, I, I've, I've heard it described, you know, white people getting in trouble for trying to uh, work against white supremacy or whatever. You know, I've heard it described different ways, but she described it as an electric shock, you know, almost like a shock collar or something, um, you know, when they almost on an individual level. <clears throat> and so, you know, that's, you know, that's one of the ways they, they're, they're, they're strong, you know, because they, they, they got it down as, as individuals, how to keep it, keep it in order uh, to get, you know, to do what they're doing, you know, dominate us. So, but yeah, that uh, that electric shock piece, I thought that was interesting to note um, for anybody who want a better understanding of how you know white people uh, do what they do on the individual level. Uh, so, but how it helps the whole team, you know. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Somebody said something like uh, white people kind of they have this, they seem like. They have the same playbook, and um, you know you notice like different white people, and it can be, you know, a span of you know ten years or whatever. Whatever the conversation is, they say the same things over and over again. Young, medium, uh, you know, small, large. It's just like they be saying the same thing, and um, yeah, somebody was like they have a playbook. I. I and you know you could say cold you know and that's that's accurate too but uh i've i've noticed that also but you know you made your point and it was a good point like you don't want to you know they're not you know weak they're ruling over us and they're they're very intelligent and, and you know they're they're, they're they're cold, and the fact that they hold on to it, it, it makes them strong.
did she feel uncomfortable about something you said, Gus, or was like was one of the callers uh, asking her something that made her say she started? What? what? Uh, she, I think uh, she said in the report she didn't. Like I said, she didn't use the term racism. She used the term oppressive regime. And I asked her if her grandfather uh, was a practitioner in this racist regime, and she said yes. Uh, and then I asked her, I think, if she was a practitioner in the racist regime, regime system of racism. And she did a lot of him and Han and the buckets of words. And she wanted to uh, recite a poem about how all these bad things are done in her name. And I was like, you know, you're not answering the question. And she said, well, I'm not comfortable with the question. And I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this whole interview. And I was excited to come and talk to you all today. And now I feel like you just want me to say that I'm a racist and I'm, I'm just not comfortable. Um, I think that was, I'm paraphrasing. That's pretty close to how the exchange went, I think. <laughs> oh, man. That's what, what, um, I, I caught when I, I came in, um, er, I mean, when I came in on the the call, uh, I heard the author saying or asking, I think it was justice. Um, is, is that, was there a justice, I believe? What? Hello? Hello? Um, can can I say it one more time? Yeah, we can hear you. Yes, okay. sir. Say it okay. one more time. Um, when I came in on the call, the author was asking, I guess someone that was online or you had a co-host, I think the name of the who the author was asking was Justice. She, she, the author was asking um, or uh, had assumed that she had read or her, him or her had read her book. And uh, the answer was no, you know, she hadn't read the book. Um, but she was surprised how whatever the questions that were, were asked prior to me listening, she was surprised of the way uh, of the questions that were uh, that she was being asked from whoever this, I think, I think it was justice, I believe. It was a justice who was asking these questions. Yes, I remember that. Yes, sir. Okay, okay. Um, I just wanted to, I was making that point because what was I was I was just kind of uh smiling inside because uh as one of the call- callers just indicated um uh, about the code see uh and how they you know how they practice uh, this code this team this team fellowship play uh because sometimes you don't even have to have read. Um, the works that they supposedly um, are supposedly exposing or giving insight to uh, when you have some knowledge of the way white supremacy work you you can you can almost see it in in every in all elements and areas as nearly uh, full I think the nine elements of people activity uh, you begin to more and more to begin to uh, see see how uh, see it played out. And so I thought that was very interesting. I, I'm not sure what the questions were. I, would, I wouldn't mind. Maybe I'll go back and listen 
uh, when it when it's uh, uh, put up on the website. But what questions were being asked to the author to even uh, I guess look like she, maybe it made her uncomfortable or uh, it, it definitely put on her p's and q's, so to speak, if I could get <laughs> whatever that was. You know, I think is she, she that's 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 very refined. You know, you go interview a person, and it's you know it's a victim. We all know that, or hopefully we all know that. And you know, you can kind of equate that to um, like 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 a very traumatized, per, you know, like a lot of trauma. It's, it's, it's you know, it's a lot. And especially in that particular situation, you know, like Gus was saying, like seeing a lot of, you know, horrendous things and stuff like that. So then you go interview the per <clears throat> the person, and they say what they said as far as, you know, it took a man, you know, and it took God. And it's like, it's like, booyah, bingo, I got my quote right here, you know what I'm saying? It took a man, it took God. And, you know, that's, that's, that's like exploitation, you know what I'm saying, taking advantage of a person because cause I don't, you know, I don't, th I, I think she knows, I don't know, you know, I, I just, I think she knows, I think that's kind of maybe what she was fishing for, you know, something like that. Um, that's just, uh, I mean, you know, what what I noticed though is is when uh, when you catch white folks with their pants down, so to speak, they just want to shut they just want to shut the whole conversation down. They just they just want to they want to exit. You know, they don't want to deal. And another way they'll do it, they'll try to um, question you on your your resources or your authority or who, or your education or, 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 you know. And like I said, I came on the eve of the, the conversation, but it, it just was so um, uh, uplifting to hear, the, I can hear the shock in the author's voice when she found out that the, the questioner hadn't read her book. But though, from what I was gathering, though the, the person who was asking the question knew what she was already, knew what she was about. You know, and I think, too, as we become a, a collective, uh, a mindset of African people uh, to be able uh, to decode like that, in that manner, you know, uh, it's a lot of foolishness we can stop and shut it down. Well, she was talking about we all related, so she probably would. She probably considered herself an African. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just thinking too. You 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 said something interesting, like, um, well, I think. Well, it could be because I'm not sure, but I've, I've noticed that they will use flattery and stuff. I'm not saying that Justice wasn't asking. She always asks good questions, you know. But, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, wow, wow, you know, that's really interesting, blah, blah, blah. But really, man, it's like, 
you know what? This conversation is not going. This interview is not going like I thought. I got a I got a dinner to go to anyway. One, two, you and you're a nigger. Three, uh, like I don't even really care about this. You know what I'm saying? Like you know, so you know they (laughs) they don't they get. Man, they disinterested real quick. You know what I'm saying? It's like this is not going the way I, we ain't talking about gays and and everything else. Um, he's trying to hold. He's trying to hold me to one. Uh, you know, he's trying to give me to answer questions that that he asked. Oh my God! Yeah, I, I don't have to do this. That's what I think it is. Whatever the whatever word you could call that. Um, that's what. That's what I. That's what I be seeing. Like they don't give a. They don't give a care. They don't care. They don't, ain't interested in none of that. And they'll say whatever they have to say. They say, oh, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. They can still say anything. Thing. You know what I'm saying? But the bottom line is, if they're not getting their way, and especially and, and, and a nigger is causing, causing it that I'm not getting my way, like, are you like for real? I, I'll kill you, nigger. I'll hang you and rape you and hang you on the tree. Or something. You know, it's like, how dare you? That's, that's, that's what I've seen. Yeah. They they have to be uh, in a superior position, you know, um, whether subconsciously or consciously. That's in their culture that they uh, are are to be in a superior position. Just like you know, somebody said earlier, you know, they they are smart people. They I mean, this system is it's a smart system. Uh, I can give them that, you know, and but and but they. If they are not in a, a, a superior position, you know, they either one, like I say, they'll try to discredit you or shut it down, do the exit scene or uh, do the smoke screen or whatever it is uh, where they don't have to face uh, face the face the correctness or, or face their uh, what it would take to correct it, you know. Yeah. And, uh um, so that's that's one of the most that's I think that's one of the most powerful places, uh, power play that we can use, uh, especially when uh, uh, you can catch them and expose them. Because see, it's the the game of white supremacy is deceit. You are not supposed to be caught. You know, you are not supposed to. Be, your hand is not supposed to be revealed. So if you can ever expose them openly, even their even their own system will isolate the one that got caught. They call those type of people irresponsible white persons or people. They would even demonize them and, you know, like, hey, we ain't had nothing to do with them, even though they sent them out there, you know. So, but just hats off to, uh, I didn't catch the questions, but hats off to to the questioner, (laughs) to the questioner earlier tonight. The caller at 3366 should be with us as well, uh, if you had something to share. And B. Moore, I was trying to add her to the line, but it didn't work. Uh, she said that she thought it was interesting that the guest said she had to practice when talking about racism. And she said that this was in response when the caller from Alabama, when he asked her uh, how comfortable a white person has to be to have a conversation about racism, white supremacy, that that was in her response to his question, uh, that she said that she had to practice when talking about racism. They have big classes and conferences and all that business to get sharper at doing just that. 
Uh, good evening, Jess. Can I be can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, I I thought the show was very interesting, and I think the clip that you played uh, that you played with Jess when she was younger, buckets and buckets of words, and that is what I really heard tonight. Not only was it buckets and buckets, it was buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets of words, and it just seemed like to me she, she wanted to answer the questions that she wanted to answer, you know. And so you're, you're asking one thing, and, and especially when she got uncomfortable. So, you know, you're asking one thing, and then she proceeds to seem like uh, she's answering something else. And I remember especially at the end when you, you know, were asking her if she was willing to come back because you wanted to talk about Thomas Jefferson and some more about this. And she, she answered your question. <laughs> she answered her question. And she didn't even touch your question, so I, I guess I was surmised that she's not going to come back because she, I guess, felt that you made her uncomfortable. I thought Justice was, you know, very good, uh, and it seemed like to me she was, she was uh, a lot more comfortable talking with the young lady as opposed to the um, host who um, put her in an uncomfortable place, if you know, because, you know, she's like, I am that cup, and it sounds like to me you want me to, you know, say that I'm a racist, and I'm sitting up here listening to this, and I'm saying to myself, no, he's not wanting you to say that. He just wants you to be truthful, you know, and if that's the truth, then just be truthful. But she, um, you know, she, she just really waffled with that. And um, I just think a lot of it is uh, with, you know, racist man and racist woman is, you know, they they don't think of themselves, you know, as racist because, you know, they go out and they do this study. And, you know, I wrote this article. I mean, I don't know the reason why. Um, I don't know if it's possibly of trying to clear her grandfather's name or to set the record straight, excuse me, but they'll do things and they'll go out and, you know, um, Researchers, you you do know a lot of white people. I always tell friends of mine, I say it's pretty much as sad as it is. It's white people who's giving us our history. They go out and they do the research, and then they come back, and it's almost kind of like a, a, a thumping on the chest. I did this, and that you literally should pat me on my back because I've studied your history, and I'm telling you all about your history. I, I did some of that. The thing with Thomas Jefferson and um, I remember, like you were saying, at one time, like in the 19th century, the writings that, you know, people knew that, you know, he was uh, uh, having an affair with this young girl, which in my opinion makes him a pedophile, but that's another conversation. But, and then Gus, you were saying that how back then they, they talked about that, and then now we're getting modern day, and people are like, oh, my God, this didn't happen. Um, I think the other thing, too, because she said something, unless I, I missed her, but she almost if I heard her right, it sounded to me as if she was trying to make the say like, oh, this was just really a great love affair. And, you know, they really had a bond. And I'm sitting up here thinking to myself, I'm like, she's a slave and he is a free white man. What kind of bond can they have? Where would she go if she refused him other than where he would send her, you know, or sell her to for him, for her refusing him? You know, so today I, I sometimes I hear things and it's almost like this romanticized, like this is a romantic relationship between Thomas Jefferson and, and, and Sally Hemming and, oh, this should be a great thing, you know, for uh, the black community. I mean, they really had a great bond. It was just a great love affair. And I'm like, I just don't take it there was nothing to it. She's a 14-year-old child. 
who was a slave, you know, and this man, and, and I'm quite sure she got a few more trinkets, you know, just because she was his piece, you know. But um, that's something what I hear because she says something, and I, I kind of get that. And um, even, um, I guess, the black Jeffersons or the black Hemings, you know, that are trying to uh, get their history out about them and uh, some of the things that I've read, and it's almost, you know, it's just something about it. And it, to me, they just try to um, romanticize this relationship, and I don't think they're – uh, was really anything romantic about it. And like I said, because, um, you know, for those, you know, Bible people, they were unevenly yoked. And it, that goes down to, like, you talk about inter- interracial relationships, that no matter how it goes, I don't care if, if it's, a, a, you know, maybe it's a white woman, black male, white man, black female. There is just two, there are two different levels. I don't care the most, the wealthiest, White black man, you would know if he's with a white woman. She has the power in that relationship, so it's on two different levels. And um, so that was the thing to me that she made. It, she just tried to make it sound like uh, that this was just that they just had a really nice bond. And I was just like, mm. but I mean, it just seemed to me that she just she was going to what once she got uncomfortable with your questioning. Uh, Gus, it just seemed like she was just going to answer. You could ask the questions, but she's just going to answer you what she wants to answer. That's that is what I heard. You know, they think we, they think we dumb, they think we <laughs> stupid. So they, that's why they say that. And and unfortunately, uh, I mean, it's not the, it's not even the fact that they think. You know, I guess I guess the cows is kind of rare, but they don't even have to think. You know, they they just they they assume they can say anything. They can make a a rape, uh, a love affair. They can they can you know <sighs> make you know a, a hero you know into somebody. They just think we're stupid. You know, I, I I don't know if they don't see themselves as racist or whatever, but I, I know that they they just simply think we're stupid and they can tell us anything as black people. And you know, we we ain't gonna know enough to to to, to um you know, catch them on it or whatever. <laughs> you know, the caller was talking about the smoke screen. You know, that 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 was <laughs> it's, it's just like you, know, you throw up a smoke boom, and it, it it can distract a person. You know what I mean? Like, and you know, we get uh, unfortunately, you know, yeah, they they know that, and so when they don't uh, run into a black person that gets bamboozled and bewildered by the smoke, it, it, it's like okay, it's time to go. Or, you know, whatever. Um, could I be heard? Yes, sir. You need to speak up um, a little bit, though. Oh, okay. You're good. You're good. All right, yeah, um, another thing she said that kind of threw me off, it was like um, she was trying to throw out some of the responsibility on the victims of racism. She was like, well, we all um, are responsible somewhat for this system of um, racism, you know, and, and I kind of, I think what she was trying to underhandedly say was trying to blame the slave trade on, on the descendants of African people. But um, I kind of picked that up. I think they were really attacking, you know. Um, 
you know, that's probably why she like 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 um y'all was saying earlier, the, the fact that you question what she said made her feel uncomfortable. You supposed to just accept it and face value. You know what I'm saying? So that's all I had to say. I I mute my line. I think white people are uncomfortable with the truth. You start asking questions and, you know, holding them, and, and they have to start, you know, and, and simple questions. Gus, Gus, Gus is a good interviewer, you know what I mean? Like, it's not too, it's not a lot of interviewers that can do that, can can ask a person, a, ask a, you know, a question. And if you answer it truthfully, you know, the preceding question and the next question, if they be, if they answer it truthfully, you're going to find out, you know what I mean, you're going to, you're going to get the truth. And so, you know, they, oh, oh, I'm going down the road of truth. Uh, you know, I'm getting uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, oh, you're trying to say that, you're trying to make me say that I'm a racist? Like, what are you doing? You're telling on yourself or something? Like, you know, that's 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 how you're leading me, into, you're leading me on or whatever. And it's like, um, I'm uncomfortable now, you know. Blah, blah blah blah, and so when Gus asked her, said, "Oh, we need to be uncomfortable, you know, being uh, comfortable, being uncomfortable." Oh, I totally agree with that. Uh, but something else, something else, and not answer the question about coming, you know. Yeah, I agree with that, but you know, maybe, maybe, maybe next time or something, or maybe with some other interview or or whatever. I just think that they're uncomfortable with the truth, like they, it's like the sunlight or something, like they just. To a vampire or something like they, it's hard for them to tell um, the truth. I kind of took it. I kind of look at it like um, like when she was saying that, I kind of visioned in my head a serial killer talking to the children of the people they kill, mm. and the people and the children was like, "Well, you know, such such. Why did you kill my parents? Such such." And the serial killer is like, "Well, I'm uncomfortable with." But y'all asking me about why I killed them. I don't want to talk about that. You know, talk about something that makes me feel comfortable as a serial killer. Well, you know, when it comes to racism and when it comes to things like slavery, you know, and all that, I mean, they just don't don't want to talk about that. I mean, if we, you know, people have studied it, and if you really did a, you know, a really detailed study of it, it's just a very, you know, barbaric, system here, and it's my understanding of some of the things that I've read that, you know, we know that slavery took place all over this world, you know, at various times, but this system here, you know, there, you, you can read articles where people say there is just nothing like this system here in what we call America today, that this was the most horrendous uh, institution of slavery in this country and the way it was practiced and carried out. So they don't want to talk about that. They just don't want to talk about that. Or, or if they want to talk about it, they want to talk about it in terms that, oh, you know, it, it wasn't so bad or, or you know, for them it wasn't so bad. And, well, then, you know, we get stuff. And, you know, Africans, you know, have slaves and they sold you into slavery. You know, you want to try to justify things because they know it was just such a horrendous system and they know some horrific things uh, have been done to, to, to black people. Uh, my contention is, uh, you know, even today, for the things that have happened to us and the things that have been done to us, uh, we're just, 
you know, we're really delayed as a people. We're woefully underdeveloped in this country and what we should be because of a lot of things that have been done to stifle our growth, a lot of things that have been done to stifle, to get rid of us, really, if you really get down to it. So they don't want to talk about that. You know, they have ways that they want to talk about it, but when you start venturing out of that that box of the ways that they want to talk about it, it's like I said, I mean, she, she was honest. She, you know, I, I'm just uncomfortable with this. And actually, I didn't hear the first 20 minutes of the interview, so when I came in, she, you know, you it was a little bit after I came in that she started saying that. I'm like, wow. And then when um, Gus asked her a question, and, and he said, you know, because we don't have much time, next thing you know, she's talking about gays in the 1980s. And if I'm sitting here listening, I said, okay, but if I'm mistaken, what happened to her grandfather happened in 1963. So why are you talking about gays in the 1980s? And I do thank you, Gus, for stopping her with that. And, you know, because she was redirecting the conversation to the way she wanted to go. And, uh, you know, and so Gus, you know, kept her at that. And then, uh, you know, went on and then finally Gus said, well, you know, and then he turned it over to justice. But, you know, they want to talk about racism and stuff in the way they want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it in the way that it should be talked about. That's what I think. Gus, I got a question for you. I I wanted to ask one of the callers, but... I guess I'll just ask the, the host because um, I don't. I'm not sure. <clears throat> but do you think that is a flip side of the coin? Because I, I'm really, I probably, I, I don't like equating black people and white people. But um, like, if I was white, I don't know. I mean, do you see it as a flip side of the, or, or do you see it as a part of the white pathology that they don't want to tell the truth about? You know, history. They don't really want to tell the truth about anything. I mean, <laughs> science. I mean, just history is just, it's just, it's just a lot of lot of deception and lies. Do you think that the reason that black people don't talk about their victim state? I mean, just black people don't still don't pinpoint um, their condition. They, they talk about this and in Egyptian and, 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 and this and that. I mean, is that? A, do you think that that's just a result of? Do you think that we are a, a a reflection of their pathology, or do you see that that's just a flip side of the coin? Like, uh, black people don't talk about their true, um, you know, state, and white people won't talk about their true state. How would you, how, how do you think it would be better to say, um, as far as the coin thing? You think it's a flip side of the coin? Do you think we're just a result of their own pathology? When you say a flip side of the coin, what does that mean exactly? Like we don't talk about the truth. Of, we don't we don't tell the truth about our conditions, and the flip as black people, non-white people, and on the flip side, white people don't tell the truth about you know about their you know their role in the system. Okay, white and black is like the coin is race. You know, just yeah, if you understand. Okay. Uh, with regards to black people, non-white people, us not being truthful, um, I think even a lot of that blame has to go to racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, I think white people have done a ton to discourage us from being truthful because if we told the truth about our condition, that would be an indictment of white people. Uh, and I think white people overstand that. And so they work aggressively 
to make sure that we are not being honest with ourselves, with each other, about our condition. Uh, I think non-Mighty Wick, when he talks about racism, avoidance, disorder, rad, I think white people are responsible for that. I've heard Mr. Fuller and many others when they say, uh, this. oh, it's even happening now, I'm sure. Um, but if you're a slave, you better smile. You better not come in here and act like you're upset about being a slave on this plantation. That could be a whipping right now. And I think that's still in effect 2013. Uh, we talk about frustrations of being on the job. Black people knowing that they can easily get in trouble for displaying displeasure with white people. I think that is just, it is in the environment. When you have a group of people that are dominating and a major part of how they dominate the planet is about deception, they enforce that worldwide. Everybody is supposed to be in line. They encourage that. Lie about yourselves. Tell yourself that you're great. When white people say, oh, black people are, I've heard white people encourage that mythology that black people are the strongest and greatest and all this other silliness that's just not true. Uh, that they, I've heard white people say that black people are the experts on racism. I have to go and learn from black people about racism and what's happened in the history of it because I'm just ignorant. White people are ig- white people do so much to encourage us to be dishonest and to lie to ourselves. And going back to fear, what I said earlier, because they are in position to punish us severely about being honest about our situation. We pick that up quickly. There are a lot of incentives to go along with that and just say, okay, I'll be in denial. I won't talk about it. I won't acknowledge it. I won't tell it to my offspring. I won't tell it to myself. Excuse me. I won't even acknowledge it to myself. There are so many aspects of their system. I think a lot of this stuff, it even happens on an unconscious level. Right? I told you I've had non-white people who told me over the years repeatedly, you're going to get in trouble. For talking to white people like that. You're going to get in trouble for talking openly, publicly in this manner about racism. It's just a part of the system where we have been violently encouraged to lie to ourselves and not be truthful about the system. That is a huge part of how white people have been able to maintain control over us. If that answers uh, the question. Yeah, I, I mean, I was trying to say like, uh, I was using the term like reflection and stuff like that, but you know, you said just brought it back to they're responsible, like they're responsible for it. I don't know. I mean, like if you were white, would you tell? Would you talk about like racism or anything? Like I, I just, I just, I think truth is our is our weapon. We got to tell the truth, man. We have to tell the truth. They're not going to tell the truth, but we have to find out something about reality and truth and and because and and you know that's 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 very i think that's power right there we need to we need to really try to get our frequency on truth we need to tap in the truth as much as we can um that you know She even redirected there. I mean, my line, if other people have input on this, but she did it in her article and she did it on the program this evening where she was talking about white people. And we would like to imagine ourselves being helping out and working against the system. And she referenced the health, which she talked about truth, the health, the help, excuse me, the book and or the film is not truth. That's about as far from truth as you can get. 
Uh, and I pointed that out. This is fiction. What you're referencing right now is fiction. This is not truth. This is not a historical record. This is just some white woman, uh, Catherine Stockett, which she made up and made all this money uh, at the expense of non-white. If anything, I mean, that's just another tacky and trifling example of racism, white supremacy, but just another route of redirecting. I think she even said this is a romanticized way. That's just a $10 word of saying that this is further deception about the system of racism, white supremacy, just continually redirect you. This is going to be your reference point for how you talk about racism, the help or whatever other foolishness that we crank out that is the diametric opposite of truth, accurate, correct, life-saving information. I'll mute my line. I think that's a good point, Gus, and you did point that out to her that, you know, the the help is fiction because I did hear that comment. And I think you have a very good point, like you say, how they talk about the truth. To the other the gentleman that asked about, to ask Gus the question, I think one of our, I do believe, like you say, that we have to be willing to, to speak truth to our situation and the situation of this country. I think our biggest problem, though, is we want to be accepted and loved, and I'm going to put that word in quotes, by these people so badly that we are willing to, um, in my opinion, go along to get along, to get that acceptance or to get that love. And therefore, when we open our mouths to speak the truth, what, what we, to speak the truth, it will come out with what, what they're saying. You know, so that word truth is in quotes it will come out to what they're saying because we want to be accepted so badly and we want to be loved um, so badly by them. And so, uh, you know, we compromise ourselves, if you will, but I do agree with you. I think we we do need to uh, speak truth to it and to start breaking it down. But, you know, Gus made a point. He said he had people telling him, you're going to get in trouble talking to white people that way. You're going to get in trouble talking to white people that way. You know, this is Internet radio, I do believe. Uh, We don't hear any conversations like this, uh, at least where I'm at, and I'm in the Midwest. I don't hear any kind of talk show, any kind of conversations like this outside of this. use outside of the cow. And I I happen to basically find out about the cows by looking at some YouTube videos and one video would lead to the next and lead to the next. And I saw a video by Dr. Wilson and I can remember her, you know, from, um, you know, back in the late 80s. And um, it was, you know, say the cows and Dr. Wilson. And so I started listening to um, some of those YouTube videos. And, and that's how I found out about the cows. You know, we don't have much like this, black talk radio, blog talk radio, or what have you out there. So, this stuff is not even out here, and I think the masses of us, as black people, probably get a lot of our stuff through commercial, radio, and um, TV, or what have you. But you're not getting stuff like this, you know, because the masses of us, I mean, I, I discovered just how much of a victim I was by uh, listening to the cows. I mean, it opened up my eyes to a lot of things. I, I thought I would knew something. I mean, I did, you know, knew a little bit, but I didn't realize just how how really bad of a shape that I was in. So I, I just think that because we want to be loved so much and, and just so accepted by them, that when we open up our mouth and we think we're speaking the truth, we're basically speaking 
what they're speaking. It's just got a black face on it. Yeah, and I would I would add to that 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 acceptance and need for love is stimulated by trauma mm-hmm. uh, and fear, uh, which is they have a historical history of being uh, vampires or whatever you want to call monsters, and when when that's a lot of the situation now is people are afraid to speak the truth to these people. And it's that fear. So when, so when we can, uh, you know, that's a whole other conversation. And I have many points to point on that. But uh, just to point out that, that it's, a, it's a, you know, how do, how do you, how how does one love its victimizer? You know, mm-hmm. what what kind of what kind of relationship are you looking for there? You know, you want to be accepted. You want what it, what you really is. You want to be. You want to feel safe. You know, you you want to, you want to make sure that uh, that 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 monster that Frankenstein don't come out. And in the end, is he he always he or she is always going to come out. So we gotta we gotta move, uh, you know. I, I, in my opinion, move to do more things like we're doing now, organize and, uh, and educate ourselves. And because we globally, the Pan African, I believe in the Pan African ideology. And globally, we have the numbers. We can make a change, man. We can we can do something. We can make a change if we just organize together globally. The person, somebody was on the free HD line. If you had a question, your line should be open. Hello, can I be heard? You're low. Just speak up. Hello? Okay, we can hear you. Um, I have to agree with uh, the last caller just now. Um, I really think we all should organize. Um, I'm 23, so I've just recently graduated college, and the college I went to was predominantly white. And just having to be on campus and trying to actually, you know, be friends with some of the black students on campus is really hard, as well as just trying to be friends with the white students. Um, but besides that, I really feel that um, I really feel that um, there's a dependency issue as well um, in regards to um, black men and women as referred to as, you know, boys and girls. I feel like we're dependent on the system of white supremacy because we see it as us trying to survive um, economically. Um, and I think it's also the fact that we also need to be loved, but it's also the dependency of surviving. And I, I don't think people are afraid of, obviously, of the fact of the white person hurting them physically. It's more of just taking away um, things that were given to them by the white person, such as getting the job, even though it's not like the best job, but just being able to survive. Because I know people who 
um, depend on white people just for their survival. So just having that dependency and them saying, oh, well, this person wouldn't do this to me, and, you know, I'm like, I think so, but they don't, because they're like, how could this person do this to me if they're providing me with all these things? So I think it's more of getting away from being dependent and having our own independency and all, you know, relying on each other and getting along with each other, you know? So... Have you, uh, have, do you have, uh, or are you just now uh, coming to, like, some ideas? If you were to put an ad on Craigslist or something, you wanted to get some people, some black folks, uh, or however you would do it, what would you organize, like, how would you get people together? Like, what would you kind of tell them to get them to want to come or, or, or whatever? Um, have you thought about that? That, that was kind of like my question. Have you thought about, imagined that or thought about that or anything like that? Uh, I really haven't thought about that. I mean, that is something I could think about, you know, because being 23 and at the stage of my life, just you know, I got my degree and everything, and I'm trying to get into uh, the legal field as well. Um, I don't know. I have to think about that one. You know, in the archives, Dr. Wilson was saying that, uh, you know, black males should get together and, and which I guess that would be, uh, you know, a black male to organize a, a something to where black males got together and they discuss how they were afraid of of of, of, you know, of white people or the police. Police, you know. Yeah, police, yeah. Well, that we'll see. That's an obvious. That's that's the only obvious one I'm thinking of of where I think a black person would be afraid physically. It's not like I mean, there's incidents that have been going on with people who have been attacked by random white people but you know police is obviously more powerful because they're in a position where they have authority and you know they can get away with things which you know is a problem i know black males who you know i'm in the car with and they get so paranoid it's like i'm like what's wrong with you they'll get so paranoid because they see a cop once see a cop it's like you know but and then i have white guy friends who see a cop and they don't even think about it it's like you know so. Yeah, white, white friend. male friends. Oh, oh, thank you, not on that. What did you say? Oh, I, I asked you if you had white male friends. Um, yeah. Um, well, at this point, I kind of just been staying away from them for a while. But I, you know, over a period of time, I've had growing up because I grew up around white people. So um, I had more white friends than black friends because I was encouraged to have more white friends. So, and then the black friends that I had were friends of white people. (laughs) So it kind of was just adding more white friends on top of more white friends because their parents said the same thing, you know, about black people. They didn't want them hanging out, like, with black people because, I guess of the position that they're in in terms of them getting their education, just these just the assumptions and stereotypes, especially with black males in particular. Um, in terms of black females, um, it's weird. I have black female friends who don't regard themselves as being black, so... Mm. <laughs> so I don't really... I have one friend who's who regards herself as being black. Um, does she fit the stereotypes that everyone says? No, I don't think so. I mean, people get mad, they get mad, but I don't think she fits the stereotype. And 
you know, she makes sure she doesn't fit that stereotype because of where she comes from. People automatically assume she would have that stereotype. So, you know. So I learned a lot from her because we lived in two different... She lived in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is more of an urban setting, and I lived in the suburbs. So having to learn, like, about her life and she's struggling with stuff... We both struggle with two, like, different things, and I've had arguments with her sometimes about um, things that she does and things that I do that she doesn't agree with because we, we come from two different settings, you know? Well, I asked you if you had white male friends for a reason. Oh. Um, I would I would ask, Gus, is there, like, a program in the archives that she can listen to that kind of addresses that uh or would you, I don't know. I think I've actually listened to pieces of the puzzle, I think. Well, that had to do with more of a um, the sexual relations with white males. I don't know if that... Well, I was asking good because, I mean, you know, you said what you said. I'm not tripping, but, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's a reality that black people can have white, white people as friends, that white people are black people's friends in the system of racism, white supremacy. <laughs> I mean, but, you know... I was just asking Gus. It's just not reality. I'm, I'm, I mean, Jesus, man. I mean, that's that's a dangerous position. That's a dangerous thought. I mean, like that that that's that's some. And and, and you know, if you have that kind of, it, it, there's a lot of people that have thoughts like that. But all I'm saying is that I can't. You know, it's dangerous. You need to. You need to either. You know, you might you might not you might not ever get to the point where you understand the the, the reality of the of, of the fact that you don't have any white friends. You might not ever get to that. But I was just asking Gus, like, is is there a way that is there a, something that spoke to that, like, um, specifically, or you know, it was it came up that you can remember? Because that's a that's a dangerous mind that's a dangerous mind uh, state that you're in. Uh, in terms of programs, uh, we have like five minutes left too. Uh, we did our three hours, and it's almost time for Breaking Bad. But uh, in terms of programs, I know we did a broadcast about white family members. Uh, that's not quite the same as white friends, although I mean that's pretty much the same ballpark. It pretty much came down to the same thing. But we did a program uh, two years ago. It was one of our investors. She was, I think, her one of her parents black parents uh, ended up with a white man and she was just talking about all of the trauma that this has brought on now that she's more informed about racism, white supremacy and understands what it means to be a white person and just seeing how this person functions in her attempted family and the conflict that they, they, that they create purposely practicing racism, white supremacy and just, uh, just how, much, how much extra conflict having, you know, white, quote-unquote, white family members. Uh, so I think that's pretty much in line. That's from uh, the summer of 2011. And I think quite a few people participated, uh, callers and what have you participated, who also have, you know, white, quote-unquote, white family members or white friends. Um, maybe we should just do a program that's specifically on white friends. People can talk about some of the problems because I know there are, um, there's at least one listener. She's an investor. She's in the California area where she was saying that her white friend uh, almost cost her her life uh, when she was with this person 
they were practicing racism and they had a major conflict and she got on the road after having conflict with her quote unquote white friend and almost had an accident, almost had a serious accident uh, where she, you know, could have got seriously injured uh, and ended up being hospitalized and everything. Thankfully, it wasn't that bad, but she recognized like, man, having exactly as you said, having white friends is dangerous. And I'll stop there. But yeah, we should do one specifically on white friends. Uh, and else folks want to get in last uh four minutes i think the guy uh, from the uh, white privilege conference i think uh zach casey i think that was his name he did he did a pretty good job i thought of explaining just um you know if, when you when you really look at white supremacy and understand it for for what it is why um it wouldn't make sense uh to really even think of white people in that fashion of being able to function as friends of people that they dominate you know mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Zach Casey, I think, is a, is a Cows episode. Um, yeah, I, I, I think um, <clears throat> it probably would be a constructive show. I probably don't know if it's already been a show like this, but um, like a whole program talking about the difference between a social friend and a political enemy. Because it seems like um, black people as a whole, we never really got that concept of a social friend. A person can be socially, could be your friend. Like, they might be fun to drink a beer with. It might be fun to play a video game with them. But at the same time, when it comes ball to the wall or stuff in the hand, um, that same person who you drinking a beer with will practice racism against you. Uh behind your back or probably in your face. Uh when it comes, if it came down to a war. Now I'm not we all we are we are in a war. White supremacy is a war. But I'm talking about uh, a violent conflict in this war. Like a violent episode go down. That same white friend would probably take your life. You know? I I, I know a white person I grew up with. But I am under no confusion about that. If it came down with his people, when it gets my people, and he had no hand, I would die. I'll, I'm not confused about it or nothing. I think that would be a good uh, program. And, and could somebody tell me their idea of, like, the differences between social friends and political enemies? I don't know if anybody can understand what I'm trying to say. I kind of understand what you're saying. Because I I kind of was in that situation, but I'm not gonna <laughs> get into that. Because Gus has to watch his show. <laughs> uh, did you hear the um the name Jack Casey? Who's that? Zach Casey. Oh, Zach. I'm asking the female caller that says she had white friends. Uh, one of the callers was suggesting, was it a program, Not Mighty Wick, or? Yeah, it was a, it's a program. I think it was probably about two years ago at this point, but it's in the archives, two or three years ago, something like that. But the guest name was Zach with a Z oh. Casey. Um, yeah, he, he talks about he talks about uh, you know talks about that topic. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna have to definitely check that out. There you go. That's what I'm, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Just you might not change your mind, but at least. Um, yeah, just check it out. See if it makes sense. See if it's logical, what was what, what, what was said and whatnot. 
and that's it. I mean, that's all we can do. We we see it as very dangerous, and we're just you know, I guess that's the least we can do. If we're not being anti-black, is just point you to something where you know you can you can get some perspective or something, uh, uh, or just a different view or something, you know. Alcohol and white people is one of the worst combinations in the universe. Uh, just because that was mentioned about drinking a beer with white people, I would not recommend that under any circumstances. Um, things can go from peaceful to terroristic in about 30 seconds. Once you've got white people with some alcohol in them, um, that's just one of those situations where it can, I mean, it's, I would expect it to get trifling real quick. Uh, and it can start off with something as simple as some racist jokes or just a little comment that's supposed to be all in fun. And then before you know it, it's, man, how did we, what is going on? This is my friend. White people, alcohol, always, always, always a bad combination. Uh, with that, we'll be back on Tuesday. I will post the episode with Zach Casey. Uh, he was from the White Privilege Conference, uh, my salvage effort. I uh, thought he did have a lot, and he admitted to being a racist, so that should be kept in mind as well. But uh, I'll post it on the Facebook page. I'll tweet it, uh, the program that he did. I think he did have a lot of uh, very constructive uh, information. Uh, he was in that, I think he explained the impossibility of a good white person, uh, i.e. a non-racist white person. Uh, but it was pretty solid, I think. Uh, we'll be back on Tuesday, or even though it's not the cow, same thing. Uh, Mr. Ehrenberg, Reality Unknown, I'll be visiting his program this Tuesday. Uh, we'll simulcast it uh, here uh, with uh, the cows, Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, invest if you think the program is constructive. Thanks all for tuning in. I hope it was uh, worthy of your Sunday evening. If not, do not waste your time and energy. We have way too many problems to be hanging out if you're not getting constructive information that's helping you get a better understanding of the system of white supremacy. I am off to watch Breaking Bad. They ended last week with the white supremacist gang shooting at the police, and uh, they even referenced them as such. They have swastikas and everything. Like I said, I've never seen a more blatant program that is all about racism, white supremacy from beginning to end, a blatant group of white supremacists out shooting and committing all sorts of crimes, tattoos, swastikas, and all of that. They have racist jokes and black people selling drugs and fried chicken. I mean, it's racism through and through and through. Uh, Anybody want to do the prayer to wrap things up? Uh, to the Most High, I just uh, want to thank you for this uh, program and um, to all the callers and to this group that you've gathered uh, to help empower us uh, as a people uh, to truth and correction in this universe that you have given us authority over. Uh, I just uh, ask that the ancestors of the greats, uh, the righteous ancestor help guide us through and help us uh, in all our areas of people activity to overcome and uh, be uh, victorious over uh, this evil system of white supremacy racism. Uh, Ashe. Ashe. Context of white supremacy, signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Non-Mighty Wicks blog, racismyit.blogspot.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back soon.
Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>